using artificial intelligence for contract writing, the cyber attack on Royal Mail in the UK, the human impact of AI and robotic process automation, and how to build a company culture for digital transformation. Those are just a few topics we're going to cover here in episode 108 of Transformation Ground Control. This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberly. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 108. This is the podcast that covers everything you need to know about digital transformation, including the strategy, people, process, and technology sides of change. We cover things on this podcast like project management, software selection, organizational change management, process improvement, emerging technologies, and all sorts of other stuff that is relevant to digital transformation today. Uh, my name is Eric Kimberling. I'm the CEO of Third Stage Consulting. We're an independent consulting firm that helps clients throughout the world reach their third stage of digital transformation success. And with me, joining me as always as my co-host is Kyler Cheatham. Kyler, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here today. Likewise, I'm excited to be here too and uh, glad to have everyone here today. I've got a great episode planned for you today. This is episode 108. New episodes drop every Wednesday, which you can find on audio podcast, pl audio podcast platforms throughout the world, as well as YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, where we stream the episodes every Wednesday morning U.S. time and afternoon U.K. time, late evening Asia Pacific time. And today we're going to cover a few different things. We're going to, first of all, in our opening segment, we're going to talk about uh, the Department of Defense in the United States recently uh, had started on some initiatives for artificial intelligence and contract writing. So we're going to talk about a, a sort of a use case, a, a current use case as it relates to AI being used at the enterprise level, in this case, a, a government organization. We'll also talk about the cyber attack on Royal Mail in the UK, and we're also going to take some Q&A from the audience here in the opening segment. And then later in the show, we're actually going to play you two clips from past interviews and presentations, the first one being with uh, Emma Roloff, who is a change expert and, and enterprise technology expert in the field here in the United States. And she's going to talk about the human impact of artificial intelligence and robotic process automation. Uh, we're actually in that interview, she talks about the future of AI and, and RPA, but more from a human perspective and how, how change management uh, fits into that. And then last but not least, we'll have you, Kyler. You're, you gave a presentation, a really good presentation a while back at one of our online digital stratosphere events where you talked about company culture and how to build a culture for digital transformation so that we'll, we'll be pretty heavy on the change management topic here today, a topic we often cover and we've covered throughout past episodes of the show as well. Uh, but before we get to our guests later today, uh, let's talk about some of these. Uh, do you want to start with current events or do you want, or the, the hot topics, or do you want to start with Q and A from the audience? You, you, you pick. This yeah, let's do some, out. let's do some Q and A. It's my show. I just welcome you here as a, a guest. <laughs> exactly. I'm just a, I'm just a guest along for the ride. Right. Um, so we had some great questions this week. And if you don't know about the question jar, what you can do is put a question on any of Eric's social media channels, TikTok, LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitter, um, 
Facebook, any of those, um, you can put a question there and you can tag me at Kyler Cheatham and I will pull the question and ask him live here. And just a reminder, he's never seen these questions. He has no idea what they are. Sometimes they're funny um, because people are mean to him on TikTok. So let's start. Right. <laughs> but not everyone's mean to me on TikTok. No. To be no. Fair. I mean, some people are not so mean. Okay. This is more of a comment that I thought was interesting. Um, that I wanted to bring to our conversation today. So the comment is big vendors will need to be nimble to avoid becoming roadkill on the highway of change. I feel like wow. it should be like a, a poet. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that person has a way with words. Um, yeah. And actually I, I posted a, I'm not sure where that comment came from, but it might be in response to a video and some clips from that video that I posted uh, called ERP is dead. And it talks about how, you know, some of the, larger software vendors are going to have trouble uh, adapting to change and, and keeping up with the rapid pace of technology. Um, there's a lot of interesting counterpoints to that, though. I mean, this person obviously seems to agree that they're going to be, they, they said the large vendors are going to be a roadkill, right? Or is it the- Yes, big vendors. Vendor? Yes. So they're saying big vendors will be the roadkill. Um, that was sort of my take on it too, but I will say that there's a lot of good counterpoints that I got on social media related to that. A lot of people had different thoughts and said, no, that's not true at all. Um, because what's actually going to happen is the big vendors are just going to go out and buy the upstarts and the really nimble, fast, innovative companies. They're just going to buy them up and make it part of their their product suite. And you certainly have seen that over time. A lot of vendors have done that over the years. Um, like you know, Oracle for a long time was out on a buying spree, buying up all the you know a lot of the different best of breed providers. And SAP has been doing that more recently. Microsoft has done it all along too. So they they are out there buying up some of these point solutions and just more innovative solutions. Um, but I don't know. I, I think I tend to agree. I think the big vendors are at a disadvantage in my opinion. I think they just move too slow. They might have more resources, more people, more money, more brand recognition, but I just think they've just moved too slow. There's too big in many cases, which I think leaves a lot of openings for the smaller uh, vendors. And I think that's why you see, I'll give you one example that I think will become more apparent over time. And that is like Workday when Workday first came out 20 years ago, maybe it was 15 or 20 years ago, whenever they started. Um, they were a small upstart, uh, nimble HR tech focused solution that was just going after the HR space. And they created a solution that was better in many ways for HR than the HR modules of big ERP vendors. And they've created, you know, they've taken some market share from the big vendors. And I think you're going to see more work days, more sales forces. Um, you're going to see more companies that you, you maybe have never heard of today, but in 10 years from now, they're probably going to be big names that are taking market share from the big vendors. Some of them will also get acquired by the big vendors. Of course, they're going to continue to do that, but I don't think you can buy up every single innovative smart vendor that's out there. So interesting point. I, I tend, I agree with the roadkill, the big vendors being roadkill on the highway of change or however they eloquently stated that. Um, but there's also a counterpoint to be made as well that maybe not, maybe they'll acquire some of those, those uh, upstarts as well. Yeah. Do you think that there's, a trust issue when you acquire a smaller system, like users are um, are less likely to purchase them if they're owned by a bigger parent company, just because of the distrust there. That's a good question. I I don't know. I, I guess it. Uh, if you're a big, if you're a big company and you want a big vendor, then it could actually enhance the trust you have with that smaller vendor. But if you're a small mid market company, which if you think about it, I don't know what the percentages are worldwide, but it's a majority, I'd say an overwhelming majority of organizations are smaller mid-size. It's not 
you know, you hear about Fortune 500 and Fortune 1000 companies, but that's a small tip of the iceberg of the in the entire population. So I think in in the the exception, with the exception of the bigger companies, maybe the upper mid market, I think the small mid sized companies, which you say is true, where they there is going to be a trust issue. A lot of people, for example, don't want to deal with SAP. They don't want to deal with Oracle. So if it no matter how great the solution is, they just may not want to be a, a customer of those big big vendors. Interesting stuff for sure. All right, let's do an, another one. This one says, Eric, I really like your posts. I put that in there for just a little ego padding um, as well. Before you can, lower the boom with a real yeah. question. <laughs> can you explain number nine, which is Salesforce on your ranking for top ERP systems for small business? Wow. Okay. Uh, yes, I can. Should I actually explain it though, or, or are they just asking like if I if I can? <laughs> <laughs> I see what you did there. Yeah, Maybe no. tell us why you chose Salesforce on that short list and kind of your methodology behind how you do your reviews in your systems. Yeah. So, um, kidding aside, that that one was uh, was one that we've got a lot of questions on. Why would you put Salesforce as one of the top ten ERP systems when it's not an ERP system? And I think that's one, where I think the industry is headed, and I think this plays to Salesforce's strength, is that it's not about CRM, really. I, I didn't put them on there. I didn't, don't think they should be in the top 10 because they provide a great CRM solution, which they do, but that's not why. The real reason is because they've created a whole platform that other applications can be built on. And I think you know if you follow my stuff, one of the emerging trends or one of the uh, trends for uh, 2023, um, that I mentioned one of my top 10 trends is really high up. I don't remember where it fell on my list, but one of the top trends for 2023 and beyond is that platforms will become more in vogue than applications and Salesforce is an application, but Salesforce is built on, and they created the force platform and the force platform is where other third-party vendors can be really innovative and create very specific solutions for specific industries or functions to where you can get a real uh, sort of an ERP experience that's tailored for you using these different third-party providers in that force ecosystem. So I suppose, you know, maybe the better, um, a, a more accurate way to describe it would be it's not Salesforce CRM that's number nine on the top 10 list of, of ERP systems. It's Salesforce plus the force platform um, that, that fits in there. So for example, we have some clients that will are in, in the manufacturing space. They might be smaller to mid-sized manufacturing companies and they will look for an ERP solution. And some of them choose Salesforce, not because it has some great technology capability out of the box, but because they get Salesforce CRM plus there's a company called Rootstock that creates a manufacturing solution built on the force platform that integrates with Salesforce CRM. And for some organizations, that's a great fit and it makes a lot of sense. It gives you more flexibility and you can do a lot with it. So that's why all those reasons are why it's in the top 10. Excellent. Good stuff. All right. Next question. Ooh, this is a good one. Again, more of a comment, but can be kind of addressed as a question. Doing a readiness assessment doesn't work as people will just lie on the survey. <laughs> wow. Um, well, first of all, I'd say when you're, when you're doing change management stuff, uh, you have to lead with the assumption that people are not going to lie and are not bad people or are not going to resist change, um, intentionally resist change, I should say. Um, and you have to assume that, yeah, maybe some people will. I, you know, I, I don't have any data to tell you that, you know, X percent of people tell the truth and X percent lie. But the key is if you can make the surveys anonymous and make sure that you're protecting the identity, you're going to get 
uh, candid feedback um, where you run into some trouble, I would agree. And this is where you have to navigate or, or, or create a strategy that, that addresses this risk is where you run into trouble is when you do the, um, the qualitative focus group. So when we do, let me back up. When we do an organizational readiness assessment, we do two things. We do a, a, a quantitative anonymous online survey and you gather a bunch, we gather a bunch of data points and benchmark it to um, other organizations to, uh, in terms of how the company communicates, the level of collaboration, the level of, of trust in leadership, the level of alignment within the organization, all these different metrics. And that's the anonymous part. And usually we haven't found a, an issue in the past with most of our clients. We don't see issues getting the good, the bad, the ugly. In fact, people, I would argue, feel more comfortable just really using it as an outlet to vent almost to a point where you have to sort of, you know, cut through the, um, cut, cut through a lot of the noise or, or a lot of the, um, anecdotal type of stuff. So um, that part I'm, I'm not worried about. Where you do have issues though, potentially is in the qualitative side, which is the second part of how we do an organizational readiness assessment is we'll do focus groups with different parts of the organization, different departments, different locations, that sort of thing. And when you're doing that, you have to make sure that in order to make sure that you're protecting the identity of people and people still feel comfortable telling the truth, you have to do a couple of things. One is you have to assure them that you're not going to, you're not going to tell management who said what. Um, it's more of a, if you have a group of seven people in a focus group, you're, you're not going to document who said what. You're just going to document the general conversation and threads in the conversation. And then the second thing is you have to make sure that people's supervisors are not there or higher ups are not there. You can do focus groups with higher ups, but you do them separately. You do them in a, as a separate group. And they and same goes for executives too. Executives aren't going to be honest either if their subordinates are in the room because they, there's some stuff they may not want them to hear. They, they may not, may not want to be overly truthful or overly honest or too honest in that case. So that's the way you navigate it though, is you, you use the online anonymous surveys and then you make sure you structure the focus groups the way that, um, in a way that, that protects that, that uh, integrity. Well, there you go. And probably if you think they're gonna lie, you have a lot of other issues within your organization that probably need to be addressed before new technology can, can do that, yeah. All right. Even in that argue, organization, though, I would argue if you did a survey, let's just say it is a like a yeah. toxic environment or something. I'm not sure. I'm not sure who asked this question or what the situation is behind it. But let's just say you're a toxic culture, or a lying culture, a backstabbing culture, which there are, you know, a fair number of organizations out there that are that way. Um, I would argue that if you were to put out a survey, an anonymous survey, you're probably going to get more information than you want. <laughs> you're going to hear a lot of stuff you don't want to hear. I think people are probably more aggressive or more um, honest, brutally honest in those environments. Oh. So interesting. That, that's my personal opinion. Yeah. Well, you are the expert. Absolutely. Um, this is a funny one. K kind of mean, kind of funny. So <laughs> I actually, me as long as we can laugh. I know. I was I was laughing out loud at these and um, this one I laughed so loud I scared the dog. So hopefully you think it's funny too. <laughs> but this is a comment on your specific TikTok videos about um, your predictions, specifically the backlash against the cloud and on mm -hmm. TikTok. Um, right. And the comment is, word salad of nothingness. What are you talking about? Managed services make technical debt a thing of the past. <laughs> okay, so um, tech, technical debt of the past. So you're making tech, uh, managed services make technical debt a thing of the past. Correct. Uh, first of all, I would say with 90 to 95 percent confidence that that probably came from someone who works for a managed service provider because i don't think you know most people even cios that are totally pro cloud and see nothing but positives with the cloud i don't think that's something that you know most would say 
they might think that, or they, you know, they might agree that cloud's the best option. And I'm not here to argue whether or not cloud's the best option, by the way, but I am here to say that there are risks and downsides to the cloud. And anyone that doesn't want to hear that, I don't know. I just have to question why, why don't you want to hear that? Why don't you want, why don't you want to talk about the added cost of, of doing the cloud? And when you use a word like technical debt, that is so vague to me. I, I, it, as you know, well, buzzwords and vague words that mean nothing like technical debt. I know what it means, but it doesn't really mean anything um, on its own. You have to do it in the context of what does it mean to your organization? Technical debt, big deal. You're getting ready to technical, technical debt. What does that mean? Okay, it's if you're modernizing- It's word salad of nothingness, right? That's what <laughs> <Exactly>. it is. Exactly. <laughs> and I'll bet I can be word salad of nothingness. I, I can uh, play that game all, all day long. So I, I'll, I'll give that person credit for that. Uh, I do use a lot of buzzwords, even though I can't stand them. I'm guilty. I'm just as guilty as anyone. So, um, but I do think though that there is, uh, there's this, uh, my point in that video, if I'm recalling the right one, is that my point is that when you look at cloud solutions, you have to be honest with what you're really getting. You're getting, yes, you're getting managed services. Yes, you're not now having to deal with managing your own internal IT infrastructure and your own IT staff, at least as much as you might have in the past. But you still have you have you have other risks now. Now you've shifted the risk to now you're paying this higher subscription cost that will absolutely cost you more than your on-premise solutions, most likely. Um, when you when you factor in total cost of ownership, when you look at the annual subscription recurring fees that never go away, when you add that up over time, especially if you look out seven to ten years, those costs end up being higher than if you managed on-prem. Now, I'm not saying you should do on-prem because it's cheaper, because it's quite possible that cloud is still going to give you more value because even though you're paying more for it, you might be getting more value in, in the form of more frequent upgrades and you're, you're constantly getting new technology, which is great. Um, but you you can't sit there and say that you're going to save money because you're not. I've, I've yet to see, I don't think I've ever seen an organization that's actually saved money by moving to the cloud. They've gotten other business benefits that can be justified by the added expense, but they have not saved money in cases I've seen. So- that's really the point there is just to, I always like to call out things that the industry doesn't want to talk about and that they won't admit to themselves, at least not out loud. And sometimes mm -hmm. people don't like when I say things out loud, which is why I love doing it. I'll be yeah, honest. right. Right. That was funny. Well, let's do one more and then we'll move into our, our hot topics here. Oh, this is, <laughs> this is not really a question, but more funny. Um, this, this video was off of your 2023 trends video. And this okay. user said, um, why is there a random dog running in the back of this video? <laughs> oh, I, uh, I must've filmed that at home then. I, I guess don't, I don't remember that. I one, don't but. think it was, I think it was in your neighborhood, but, um, but this is a good one to end on, um, with the dog. But so this was on the craziest things that you've heard in digital transformation projects. Mm. And this quote, they added to what you said. And the quote is, we will have this done in four months. Yes. Yeah. And to add some context, I put out a, a TikTok, you know, shorter TikTok videos, as well as a, a more extensive YouTube video that talks about the craziest things I've heard uh, from clients um, as it relates to digital transformation. And in that, I talk a lot of, about a lot of uh, common ones like uh, this is just an IT upgrade. Um, change isn't going to be hard for our people. You know, there are things that we commonly hear that are just totally off base and sometimes crazy. Um, but and that is a good one um, that I that I would actually, if I could reshoot the video, which who knows, maybe I will someday. I would actually add this one to the list because it's a really good one. That honestly, I don't know why I didn't include it. But that was that 
you know, this project should be done in X number of months. Usually the X number of months, whether it's four months or six months or whatever, usually it's way off base. Um, and again, it's, it's a sales tactic to really help you understand that, yeah, you could deploy that vendor's technology in a certain amount of time. It's not going to be at all pretty and it's not going to give you the business value you need, but you could do it. So I don't question, you know, vendors ability to, to build and deploy technology within extremely rapid periods of time. But that's not what takes the amount. Of, that's not what consumes the most time and effort in a project. It's the business process redefinition, realignment, the organizational redefinition, realignment, um, just the change in the training, all that stuff that goes along with it. That stuff um, you're just not going to do in most cases. You're not going to do it in four months, no matter how small your organization might be. And that's becomes more exponentially true the larger, more cl- complex your organization is. So it's a great point, and certainly one that I totally agree that could be easily included in a list of craziest things that clients say or hear. Well, there you go. Well, excellent. Again, if you do have questions for Eric or funny comments that you want to say to him, because obviously they entertain me, so I like to pull those, um, you can go ahead and and comment on any of his social media channels. Um, I do monitor them, my team and I, and we, we pull some of you know, some great questions to have and some dialogue around here on the episode. So you can do that on any of his social media platforms. You can tag me if you'd like to um, expedite for next episode. Um, But I'd love to hear from our audience on that last one um, before we kind of move to our last topics. What is the craziest thing that you've ever heard during a, a digital transformation, whether it's from a vendor or a client or an internal stakeholder, this should be a good conversation because we know we have a wealth of experience in our awesome audience. So with that, um, let's move on to some hot topics. We actually, I didn't do it on purpose, but both of these are public facing or public sphere organizations that I have today. And, and one of them is actually a comment from one of our audience members asking us to talk about that. So if you do have hot topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can go ahead and again, just leave a comment um, in any social media platform. We see all of them and let us know that there's something that you think would be good for us to cover on um, ground control. So with this one, it is uh, the Department of Defense here in the United States is actually um, prototyping an AI-powered contract writing capability. And I'm not sure if it's called ACQBot or Aquabot, but that's how it's spelled. And it's part of its trade win initiative. And its capability is to develop and find solutions around fielding AI and and machine learning, as well as other digital um, data analytics tools. Um, So the prototype, basically what it does is it it writes manual processes that are really dense, really big contact or contract um, type language. Uh, it doesn't make any contracting decisions; it just drafts them. So this is kind of similar to the GT or Chat GPT. <laughs> I did a video on that this week, and I was like, "This is going to be rough," but I did it. <laughs> so <laughs> I've drawn um, that too. I know, right? Um, but it's similar to kind of that functionality, that overall approach of drafting content based upon reading and absorbing other content, but it's original content and specifically for contracting uh, for obviously the, the Department of Defense. So definitely something interesting uh, that that we're seeing a use case for in the, the public sphere, not just um, the enterprise tech. 
Yeah, that's super interesting. And it's cool to see more and more of these enterprise level examples and use cases of how AI is being used. Because I think, you know, ChatGPT is such a phenomena at the consumer level now that, you know, you start to wonder now that we're, you're starting to see more and more consumer level adoption, you're starting to see a little bit of enterprise or at the small business level uh, adoption with like Jasper, which is something we use at, at third stage. It's a content creation tool, um, but being kind of taken a step further and looking at how can a, a really big organization use AI to potentially automate or speed up a, um, you know, back office sort of a function like your contract procurement processes. That's just another great example of that. So that's, that's pretty cool. Absolutely. And if you want to know more about um, chat GPT, as I said, I did a video on our um, third stage YouTube channel on it and enterprise use cases. I outlined some of those and we also kind of talked about it on last week's episode of Ground Control. So if you subscribe to both of those channels, you always be alerted when that type of, of content comes out. Yeah, great. So let's talk about um, this really interesting cyber attack that one of our, our um, listeners sent us when it comes to the Royal Mail, the mail service in the UK specifically. So the Royal Mail asked customers to stop sending letters and parcels overseas after um, criminals launched a ransomware attack on the company. So it impacted multiple systems that prepare mail for dispatch specifically abroad and limited any functionality to track or trace overseas items. Um, and this has been an, an extensive technical issue that has rippled down to a lot of specifically smaller, mid to sized businesses because they can't ship their product abroad um, without a private service. Um, so think about smaller businesses like an Etsy shop or something like that, or even, you know, a, a wanting to um, just simply send a payment or a mail or anything like that abroad. Um, so it's it's been a, a big disappointment when it comes to a huge disruption in the overall um, business and day-to-day -day life of people in the UK. And if, obviously, if you have experienced this or know more about it, please share in the comments so that we can um, review those and, and see what this looks like. But it's just another huge example of how a ransomware cybersecurity attack can take down a whole system that people rely on um, within their infrastructure on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's always interesting when you see like a, you know, a critical, essential public facing function, like a mail service or in the United States, we had an airline based here in the United States, right over the holidays that had a, that had a, um, a system outage. I don't think that was a cybersecurity related necessarily, or maybe it was, I can't remember, but, uh, either way it's, 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 it's a good reminder, a stark reminder that, that, uh, you know, if, if these big public facing organizations with a lot of resources at their disposable at their dis disposal and presumably more IT sophistication and cybersecurity sophistication than the average small mom and pop or midsize organization or even a larger organization, um, it's just a stark reminder that there's there's a risk out there that you've got to you've got to tighten up. You just might have you might be a bigger bullseye if you're a bigger company or, or a, less of a bullseye if you're smaller, but there's um there's all kinds of attacks out there. I mean, we get here at third stage, you know, we've got 70 people or so, so we're not a huge company, but we get phishing scams and cybersecurity attempts a lot. In fact, you know, we early when I first started the company, we had our, 
our website was hijacked. Um, and, and it wasn't a ransomware situation. We got it back, but it was kind of weird. They just took over the website and pointed it to a, uh, Chinese, um, pet food website. So you would go to third stage consulting.com and it redirects you to a, a, a Chinese pet food manufacturer. So I have no idea why they did. I still don't fully understand that, but we tight that forced us to tighten up our security. And that was only like a year into our business. So we were tiny at that point. We had like a dozen people maybe at that point. Um, and we're a lot bigger now. So we get more, you know, I have noticed as we've gotten bigger, we've gotten more and more attempts to have some sort of cybersecurity breach. So definitely a, a hot thing and something that you've got to be aware of no matter what size of company you are. Yeah, you've texted me twice this week for Nordstrom's gifts cards. So, you know, uh, yeah, did you get those? Yeah. I was I was in a meeting. I was in a meeting. Well, I couldn't you were, talk. You were in a you were on a conference call on one and then you were in a webinar on the the next one. And and that was like a big red flag there. But no. Yeah, because I don't do all, webinars. Fortunately you were, know that I don't do webinars anymore. So <laughs> That's so that's so 2010. So you yeah, knew that I know, me. right? They need to up their language. If they were like, "Hey, I'm on a live stream," I'd be like, "No problem, I'll be right there." <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah, now, now you said too much. You, you know, said too right? much. Now this, now the hackers are all listening, and they're going to use that next time and say, "I'm on a live stream, and uh, I need you to go buy some gift cards for me right now." Yeah, from Nordstrom, which I'm like, wow, that's a really classy. That usually were like Apple or Walmart or something like that. So. But yeah. just classing up the phishing schemes, which, you know, is always entertaining. Um, right. But in all seriousness, I think it speaks to specifically in the public sector, which is notorious for having those older systems that really open up opportunities for ransomware yeah. attack. The importance of just that technical stack audit or just an understanding of what your systems look like and where there are opportunities to um, tighten up your security. So that definitely makes a lot of sense, which is, you know, a great segue into your conversation with Emma around um, what it looks like to actually put some of these emerging technologies in your organization from not only a process standpoint, but also from a people standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we're excited for this interview. It's it's interesting because we had her on the show like a year and a half ago, or it was early on, you know, early in the the early days back, back when, uh, we were both so much younger and more naive when we were first starting this podcast in, uh, early 2021. And, uh, we had her on to talk about the, the reason I like her is because she talks a lot about emerging technologies, but she also talks about it from the people perspective, which is really cool to bridge, you know, sort of extreme gaps like that, you know, between bleeding edge technology and then the human side. And so, um, we had her on to talk about sort of the future of AI and robotic process automation and the human impact of that and the human side of it. Um, and it was a super interesting conversation back then, but it's even more relevant now. And, and given that we we're going to talk about uh, chat GPT today, um, we thought it'd make a lot of sense to to have her uh, to play that clip for you again, that interview from from way back when. So we'll we'll play that clip uh, with Emma Roloff, who, who's going to be on to talk about that. But first, we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, 
Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 108. This is the podcast that has everything to do with digital transformation, the people, process, technology, sides of change. Um, we have a new episodes every Wednesday on audio podcast platforms, whichever one you prefer. Chances are we're there, so check us out there. Or you can watch our stream of the podcast every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. Um, so our next guest, we're actually going to play a, a clip from a previous interview with Emma Roloff, and I don't remember what episode number that was, but it was summer of 2021. I remember that we we did this uh, interview with her, and she was on to talk about the future of AI and robotic process automation, but more from the human people uh, side of things. So we're going to play you this clip uh, because it's very relevant to our earlier conversation about uh, chat GPT and, and uh, just emerging technologies in general. And I think, uh, like I said, a year and a half ago, it was very relevant, but even more so today. So we thought you, we'd play you this clip. Uh, so let's go ahead and roll the clip. When we come back from that discussion, uh, we'll we'll sort of debrief and, and add some more uh, more updated, refreshed view of, of that uh, discussion from a year and a half ago. So let's roll the clip with Emma Roloff. Uh, Emma, welcome to the show, and uh, thank thanks you. for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited. It's fun for me to be on the other side of the interview every once in a while and have the opportunity to to keep myself on my toes to answer the questions as opposed to always asking them. So, right. Exactly. So just to start, maybe tell us a, a little bit about yourself. I mean, how did you, I guess, just to start, and then I'll ask you in a second about Navient and what Navient does, but, mm -hmm. but uh, just maybe tell us about yourself. how do you end up, how do you end up in this world and what do you do now in this digital yeah. world? So I'd like to pretend that I had this like master plan to get into the world of digital transformation starting at like age five, because that'd be a fun story to tell. Um, but I, I, don't <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if there are five year olds that are out there yeah. dreaming about that. Um, but I originally went to school to be um, a middle school and high school teacher. And um, so that was kind of even starting when I was five, I was always the one that played teacher and of course told my friends what to do in that avenue. Um, and then all through middle school and high school, the subject changed, but it always seemed that I wanted to be a teacher. Um, and then on the tail end of my student teaching and kind of going through that process, um, before I even had time to apply to a job in a traditional teaching environment, I was offered a position in corporate training um, and I did that for a couple of years and realized like, hey, I actually, this business thing is interesting to me. And I had never really even entertained that idea in the past. And so when I started kind of looking at what that next adventure would be, um, I kind of found Navient, the organization that I work with, um, more by culture and less about what they actually physically did to help businesses. Um, I, my husband's office physical location is across the street from our physical location here at Navient. And he had worked on a project with a couple of my coworkers and said, hey, why don't you go check it out? And so kudos to Navient for giving me the opportunity to come in and learn about our industry because I, when I had my first interview, I didn't really know a lot about it. I just had my experience from previous positions, understanding what inefficient processes looked like and how um, 
frustrating it could be in the the position of having to do those inefficient processes day in and day out. Um, and I mean, part of my internship was doing things like unclogging printers and, and or walking things physically around an office for approvals and the types of stuff that hopefully we'll be able to automate and not have interns relive again um, anytime in the future. And so I really kind of stumbled upon the industry, but the more that I got involved in it and the more that I saw the impact that our projects at Nambient were having on our customers and the cost savings that our customers were getting, I started to get pretty passionate about it. Um, and over the last year and a half have really found um, like my true passion of educating and kind of taking that teacher persona and putting that hat on in the world of digital transformation, because even though you and I and people in this industry talk about it all day, every day, it's easy to think that everyone understands this. Um, but I've realized there's a pretty big gap in between people that aren't living and breathing in this industry, understanding what it is and what it could do for them and us over here on our side. And so I've really been working to kind of take that teacher hat and help bridge that gap for people. Um, and that's really the part that I've found has been super exciting and a lot of fun for me over the last year and a half. Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a super cool background and a non-traditional background to get to digital transformation. But uh, as we talk about some of these topics today, I think, you know, will find that that's a very helpful background. I mean, I, I think having that human in the education-based background is something that's sorely missing and lacking in, in the digital transformation space. So that's something we'll, we'll get more into uh, yeah. very later. And speaking of that, by the way, I, I found you, the way you and I connected was on TikTok because you had posted yep. a video about change management. And so that caught my eye and I thought, okay, we're thinking the same way here. And I think we engaged a little bit on TikTok and then, you know, here we are in each other's uh, podcast. So uh, thanks, for, yeah. thanks for being here. So tell us about Navient. What does Navient do? Yeah, so Navient, and this is going back to the idea of, of broad statements, this might be a little broad, but I can start giving kind of as we go through our conversation today, a bit more context surrounding it. Um, but we are a process um, minded consulting organization, and we are resellers and implementers of a number, number of technical solutions that are really focused on content and processes within the organization. So anybody like joining us today, thinking about your position, when I say content, I mean everything from your written emails that are coming in to potentially voicemails that need to be a part of, you know, a claim in the insurance industry or um, documents that you're pulling down from other websites or forms that your customers are filling out to, to start and kind of initiate a relationship with you. So we interact with all different kinds of content all day long. And sometimes organizations don't have a great way of organizing that and making it accessible for their employees while they're trying to get their job done. And so one of the major things that we do um, is, is look at how do we provide access to information and content in a way that enables automation and drives process efficiency within the organization. So um, typically our engagements are a mix of that consulting where we're really looking at what problems are we trying to solve? How are you doing things today? Um, maybe using some data along with our consultants background to help understand where are opportunities to improve your efficiency and your process. 
And then because we have a, um, a couple of different tools that we use in the background, we have the ability to kind of think through what are your business drivers, what are the outcomes that we're trying to, to help drive for you, and then we will pull from that toolkit of these different um, solutions to bring forward the right tools to solve those problems. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, I want to dive into that a little bit more because you just hit on a, a couple things that are uh, weaknesses or the Achilles heels of traditional ERP systems, and, and that's that's really the, the crux of what we want to talk about today. So. Um, I guess to start, um, you know, I know one of the things that when we when I looked at your background and as we've talked, I know um, RPA, robotic process automation is, is one area that um, you guys focus on. And, and what I want to do today, there's a series of questions I have here to start that you kind of dive into some of these uh, emerging technologies and, and pieces of technologies that don't necessarily get addressed by ERP or enterprise wide technologies. And one of them is is RPA. So maybe help us understand what RPA is. What, what what's an example of where it might be used? Yeah. Um, so RPA stands for robotic process automation, and just like it says, it is bringing in not a physical but a software robot to help you manage repetitive processes within your organization. And so that's kind of at its its most. Um, pure definition. Um, but then we also, and this is where we get into to the land of ambiguity, there are um, tools and sometimes as you start to kind of do some investigation in how RPA works and kind of where it kind of blends with some of the other terms, there are times where there will be artificial intelligence or machine learning that are also working alongside with that software robot to be able to execute tasks that might go above and beyond just repetitive. Mm -hmm. But um, when we take a look at use cases for things, uh, for RPA and how it can help organizations, is it's really looking at where do you have tasks that um, are completed, you know, and sometimes for large organizations, things are completed thousands of times a day. Um, or um, when you're, you're looking at, you know, taking information from one system and entering it into another system or places where you maybe would desire to have something like uh, API integration so that your solutions can fit together much more seamlessly. But it's an application that you don't have control out of because it's a third party application or you'd like that integration to be with a website and you don't have the ability to build the same type of integration you would if you had ownership of all of those platforms. RPA gives us the ability to have your little robot assistant go and execute those tasks on your behalf so that your people can focus on the more innately human parts of their job rather than focusing on those really mundane or repetitive tasks that are done repeatedly throughout their day. Um, and so sometimes that RPA can be done um, in like an unattended fashion is what we call it. And that's where we would look at like really large batch processes that are happening hundreds or thousands or you know hundreds of thousands of times in a day. Um, or we have some attend or attended automation that allows your um, physical human workers to interact with the, that RPA um, bot to execute tasks in tandem to speed up their work on a daily basis. And so there's a lot of variability of how it can be used depending on the specific process and the other tools that are kind of making up your capability collection. Um, but ultimately the best 
way to kind of look at where you would want to use RPA is automating highly repetitive tasks so that you can just take that portion out of your day. So something like processing purchase orders or um, I'm just trying to think of other examples, but POs, that, that's one that seems like there's a high volume of purchase orders or that sort of thing that people Yeah. Um, so one of the examples that I like to use when we're talking about um, like, a, for example, in a um, claims scenario, when we're looking at adjudicating a claim and you've got a collection of information and you have to gather information from different websites and or download a police report or you've got you have to bring everything together into one place. One of the things that we can do is have your RPA bot go out and collect some of that information that you may need to make that decision. So go download a report on your behalf and bring it into your system of records so that you have access to it. Or, um, and, and there's, you know, the scenario where maybe you have a process that leads to having to open a ticket on an external website to, as kind of the last stage of your process you can gather all of the information and do all of the processing that you that needs critical thought and then have your your rpa bot grab all of the data that you've collected and go out to that third-party website and enter that data and open that ticket for you so you know in that scenario we're not talking about saving you hours a day that might be you know two to three minutes to open that ticket but if you're doing that a hundred times a day all of a sudden that 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 starts to add up pretty significantly for you. So it's it's um, one of the ways that I, I kind of use to conceptualize how this works is a lot of times it's if you can show a robot at, or that, that bot that you're working with how you are executing that task and by clicking around on your screen and it can see the work that you're doing and where you're gathering information and where you're putting it, it will be able to execute that task for you. Now, is there always a return on investment to have that bot do that work for you if there's not a high enough volume of it? No, probably not. Um, but that's where, again, when we get to those really repetitive tasks that we can map very easily and we can essentially train that bot to what you're doing on your screen from day to day, then it will be able to execute that task on your behalf. Gotcha. Now, is this is this custom software or is this sort of off the shelf software that you could deploy in different process settings or different environments? There, um, so there are, I would say all of the solutions that I'm aware of are pretty configurable in nature. So um, there are probably, you know, custom RPA bots that have been developed by, by people, but everyone from Microsoft to some of the big names within RPA, like UiPath, Cryon, um, Automation Anywhere, Blue Prism, those are the, the large names within this space. And there's a, there are many, many more, including open source tools like Robocop or, or uh, Robobot. And there's you know tons and tons of tools that you can choose from. Um, and most of them are gonna be kind of of that low code configuration environment. So you have to understand how to interact with the tool. You have to understand the, the process behind it and how to configure the, the tool to do what you're looking for, but you're typically not building it from scratch as you're going into it. And it's really more mapping it to do what the business process requires at that point. Gotcha. So, so I had, uh, you know, you and I exchanged notes on the, on the questions I was going to ask you, and I'm already going to blow the script now because I can't help but ask, even though I was going to wait until later to ask about change management, I have to do it now. So when you have a situation where you automate someone's job, 
and I'm a AP clerk and I'm processing, um, you know, processing purchase orders and paying, you know, setting up payments and whatnot. And so you're going to automate my job with this, this, uh, the RoboCop, as you called it the first time. I noticed the RoboCop. Yeah, before I said it wrong. <laughs> the RoboBot or whatever the software is. I told you there was going to be a time or two while we were having this conversation that I misspoke. So go ahead. Sorry. That's why we do it live because it's not editable now. It's, it's on. Yeah. Like, it's, it's Everyone knows I make up words. Anyhow, continue. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so when you automate someone's job, how do you manage that change? I mean, because that's a pretty significant change to come in and say, we're going to have a robot or RPA automate what you might be spending, you know, 50, 60% of your time doing, what, what have you seen work or what have you seen some of the challenges be from a, from a change management or human perspective of that? So I think the biggest, and I, I, I don't want to say this is a misconception because it is a change and you do have to manage that change. Um, but I think what typically happens and what I've seen with our customers is more often than not, they are welcoming of that portion of their job being taken because it's not that they don't have enough other things to be doing. It's mm -hmm. that the other things don't get the attention that they should be, or they don't have the capacity to ever take a deep breath. And what I mean by that is, you know, there's been organizations that we go in to help specifically in this accounts payable scenario that you mentioned that we're going in with whether it's RPA or some of the other tools that we can get into that we've got that kind of help eliminate some of this manual work. And we go in and we help them automate portions of that process to eliminate the manual keying that they need to do. And it opens up time for them to suddenly be paying their bills on time as an organization. Because in the past, they've had a three month backlog of processing that they're trying to get through and they can't hire and train people quick enough or they don't have the budget to have those people there. And so rather most of the time when we come in, unless it's a very, very, very large organization that has a lot of people only ever touching these repetitive tasks, do we get into the place where we're displacing people's positions? We're really just refocusing their time to focus on what are the really impactful parts of their job that drive the business forward. And usually once you kind of put it in that frame of mind, they're welcoming of that change because they don't want to be doing that part of their job anyhow. And so it's, I mean, and again, I don't, I don't do, do not want to mislead that there isn't you know, some positions that might be um, eliminated because of intelligent automation and some of the, the tools that we're going to talk about today. But more often than not, the organizations are raring and ready to go to take that person and train them to do something different if their whole position was something that's being eliminated or they're shifting their focus onto that higher value task. Um, but it does, you have to have the conversation honestly yeah. on the front end for them to get to the point where they understand that and they're not fearful of the change or fighting the change. Because if they think that their job is going to go away, they're not going to help you do it. But if they understand we're not here to eliminate your job, we're here to make it better. And let's talk about what your your ideal better job looks like and you be a part of this. They will come up with new ideas to manage the process. They'll help bring forward other, you know, bottlenecks within the process that you should be focusing on as well. And it'll be just a, so much more collaborative throughout the entire process. Yeah. So again, their engagement and buy-in early on rather than defining the change and forcing the change on them is sort of the. the yeah. And one of the things I mentioned that, you know, from our perspective, our methodology, we have typically a 
blended approach of bringing in a process consultant and or using data to help us hone in on where those opportunities are for improvement. But I think that that process consultant and even you know whether it's someone internally or a third party but somebody being there to help you have those conversations and ask questions in the right way and frame things in the right way and not forget about the people is such a critical part of that because you know as you get into conversations about change it's a scary thing for people and you know that i mean we're both human centric change people um and when you can help them feel even incrementally more comfortable with it and help them feel ownership of it. One of the main things that we do is a discovery process where our team is working alongside with our customers team to design what that future state looks like. And when it's somebody from the outside asking questions of why do you do it that way? Or is there a different way to do this? It's less threatening to answer those questions and you don't get the, the same defensive nature that you do if you're managing it internally. And I don't know if you guys have had that experience, but sometimes that like friendly third party asking the question is a lot more well received than somebody, um, even if they have good intentions within your organization. Yeah, it's, you're not you're not caught up people know that you're not caught up in the politics, you know, the internal dynamics and, you know, we're not, you're not jockeying as an outside party. You're not jockeying for any sort of, there's no ulterior motive to suggest something like that, but it could be perceived that way. If it's someone internally suggesting like, Hey, what is Emma, what do you do all day? Like, you know, do we, do, we really, do you really need to be doing that? Maybe we should just automate your job. That's going to be a lot more threatening if I say it to you as, an, as a coworker versus a consultant comes in and maybe more tactfully asks the same, the same thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we're here playing you a clip of an interview with Emma Roloff back from summer of 2021 about the future of AI and robotic process automation. We've got a lot more to cover, so stick around. We're gonna take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. Are you looking to stay ahead of the curve in the ever-changing landscape of digital transformation? Then you need our newly released 2023 Digital Transformation Report. This comprehensive report covers the latest trends, technologies, and strategies to ensure your digital transformation is optimized for success. The 2023 Digital Transformation Report is packed full of proven methodologies and insights from experts in the independent digital transformation field. You'll also receive practical insights on how to implement digital transformation strategies within your unique organization. This free report is available for download on our website at thirdstage-consulting.com under our thought leadership section. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 108. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday. Be sure to check us out on audio podcast platforms as well as LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. We're here playing an interview clip with Emma Roloff that was conducted in 2021. Let's continue the conversation. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of it that way. And, it, and it's interesting to hear you say that because uh, we see a lot of organizations that um, that don't even think about like, what what are we gonna do with that time that we save? You know, they And that is something I think from an org design perspective, you have to do is say, okay, if I'm saving 30 or 40% of Emma's time and she doesn't have to process POs anymore, what is she going to do? What's her focus? How does it, how does she reprioritize her work? 
um, in the unfortunate event that her job is going to go away. What does that look like? What do you do with Emma? You know, and, and just having those answers is important. And, and companies don't think about that a lot of times because they're so focused on the technology. Like, how do we get this technology to work and how do we define the process? But they don't always think about what does that impact to the organization? Yeah. And I, again, we've had some, and I would say more early, early adoption of digital transformation when there used to be mail rooms with, you know, 20 people that were working in these large organizations. That was when I, I think we saw a little bit more of like, a, okay, so what does our training path look like for these people or where well, where else in the organization can we find a spot? And it was a little bit more purposeful. I would say it's been a while since there hasn't been enough work to keep people busy after we've automated portions of their job. Um, that like, it isn't like a, we just, you know, more they've brought in automation because they have a capacity issue as of, or they are growing so rapidly and they would rather not have to hire at the clip that's required to support that growth. And so then they're able to keep the same size team, but you know, the, the company growth would have outpaced the size of their team had they not automated the process. Right. I've got one customer who I think if I'm going to say this correctly, they have a process that they put in place probably 10 years ago. Um, and so they were early adopters of, of technology and using it to manage processes. But over the course of that time frame, they have offset an additional headcount of 130 people from how they were doing the process to what they're doing today and incremental improvements to that process over time has allowed them. So it's not a hard ROI because they didn't hire those 130 people, but based off of their project projections, they were able to offset that much additional headcount. Yeah. 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 It seems like in more recent years, uh, companies are a lot more lean, you know, they don't have a lot of, a lot of, uh, fat to, to trim, you know, in terms of, uh, people I know in the nineties, when I, started my career, there was a lot more, it felt like there's a lot more trimming that had still had to happen in terms of, of headcount and whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, so keeping in this initial theme of, you know, sort of alternate emerging technologies that not everyone is, is fully aware of yet. Um, you mentioned the word intelligent automation a second mm -hmm. ago. Tell us, tell us that what, what is intelligent automation? How does it apply to an organization? Yeah, so um, I, I got and dropped that. And one of my big pet peeves is within our industry. I mean, at least an ERP has been an ERP for a while now. In our industry, it seems like every two years or so, we like to throw another term at everybody just to confuse them. And so <laughs> intelligent automation, I don't want to say is a completely separate idea from something like RPA. But really, when we take a look at intelligent automation is we're looking at tools like artificial intelligence, machine learning, um, natural language processing, these more kind of advanced emerge. They're they're still emerging because they're not kind of at the point where we think of AI as these, you know. All knowing. Uh, I think it was Will Smith in the, the iRobot movie. Yeah, it was. You know, like we think when we think of artificial intelligence, we think of like these all-knowing, like crazy smart robots that are going to take over the world. We're not to that point yet. So if we're if that's our goal, we're still emerging. Um, but it's bringing in those um, human-like thought patterns, and you know, AI in itself has so many different layers of then kind of subsequent technologies that build up to that larger category. But it's taking that kind of hum human mimicked intelligence and bringing it into 
these automation tools that have been around for a while. So things like RPA being combined combined with those tools would then become intelligent and kind of that intelligent automation space. Um, another kind of category within this, and I mentioned that this kind of falls into our capabilities as well. There's a technology called OCR, which I'm sure being in the ERP world, you're familiar with OCR, but that's optical character recognition. In the past, that, that technology has been around for, for many, many years, far before I got into the industry. It was very template-based and it was very much being able to look at a specific portion of a document based on coordinates or based on a, you know, a, a a actual template that you built out in your tool to go to this spot and capture the characters that were at that spot within the document. Now we're able to do things like intelligent document processing, where we have AI and, and machine learning as a part of these solutions. So rather than having to build out templates, the tools can kind of look at the document the same way that a human would and use context on the document and use things like natural language processing to know that the pound sign or the hashtag or whatever we want to call it also means number. And it knows that that means number and it knows that we may, through that natural language processing, we may abbreviate the word number down to NUM. And so when it sees, you know, and or, or I'm sorry, or um, invoice, it sees invoice and, you know, it has the invoice number and it's an abbreviation or it's a pound sign or however that that vendor presents that information to you the tool is intelligent enough now to understand that that's what that means understand the context of that and then know that it should look above that it should look below that it should look next to it and then it's going to determine oh okay that's the invoice number i'm going to grab that value and i'm going to pull that out as an index value and that typically has had to be either a manual process or we had to build out those manual templates to be able to get us to that point. Now these tools you know, are so well-trained and so well-versed in what an invoice looks like, you can have all sorts of variability still with very high confidence coming through because of that intelligent aspect being added into the tools. And what we're starting to see much more is now that intelligence being built into all sorts of technology that allows us to kind of move into that intelligent automation space beyond just capture or beyond robotic process automation to things like business process management or BPM tools, now starting to have intelligence infused in them. So it can start to do some routing with a little bit more logic and a little bit more thought process and intelligence behind it, instead of all just yes or no, right or wrong, you know, kind of logic that we've used in the past and starting to minimize the amount of human intervention that you need in these processes when things follow your, your standard process. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And I can see a lot of uses for that. I mean, there's so many, you think about the average organization, a, a big, huge company that does lots of different things, lots of different documents floating around with different nomenclature. And even just that one example of invoice number, you know, think of all the alternate scenarios where that would help, you know, even outside of invoice processing as well. Well, and some of those, again, with with machine learning and that type of thing, I call, you know, I talk about that, that tool specifically, a little bit of an art and a little bit of a science right now, because 
when it's got machine learning in it or any of these tools that do, they get more effective over time too. So as you get more documents running through the process and the engine has more time to learn from these document samples, you will have to intervene and kind of verify through the process less and less as it goes. And so it will know, oh, okay, even though I see this address block and I know this address block is this vendor, and I know this vendor typically puts this information there and, oh, okay, we're processed. We know we can, with confidence that we've got it. And it can do things too, like, you know, on the invoice side, I'm going to calculate all the line items and add in the tax and make sure that this, you know, that the number I've captured here matches and, and is verified based on the math that I've done. And so it can do some of that stuff that we had to rely on people to do even three years ago, you know, so there's um, there's a lot of advancements being done in all of these kind of automation or process management tools to get to that point where we have less and less intervention needed each step of the way. Gotcha. Okay. And so uh, we have a, an audience question I wanted to get to um, from Karen, who's, who's watching on Crowdcast. And again, if you're watching on LinkedIn or YouTube or Twitter and you have questions, feel free to just put them in the chat box uh, on that platform. I'm watching all of them for any questions that come through. But the good news is Karen is not uh, thinking too much differently than you and I as it relates to the human part. So I'm glad it's not just me that couldn't resist asking the change. <laughs> but, but Karen asked, what role changes have you seen when an organization moves to bots? For example, how does this impact customer support? So what so yeah, and I actually, that's, Karen, that, that idea of customer support, one of the biggest areas that we see RPA being used is in customer support and some of those front-facing um, roles within an organization, even beyond, um, you know, when, let me actually, let me take a half step back. So number one, when we bring in this type of automation, typically what happens, and, you know, we talked about shifting focus and shifting mindset. Um, having the capacity to be empathetic <laughs> or having the capacity to respond quickly and um, actually manage customer service is something that is really, you know, uh, when you are months and months behind processing your invoices and you've got vendors giving you late fees and you have your boss telling you you need to cut down on your costs and all of these things and suddenly when your coworker sends you an email to ask you who like in this scenario is your customer you know your 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 customer emails you to say have you gotten this invoice i had a vendor reach out to me you're not that concentrated on being super polite in your response to that you're not that concentrated on getting them a response to answer that question quickly because you have so much work once you have the that I kind of called it the ability to breathe <laughs> and you have the bandwidth in your position to offer that customer support in kind of that setting that we've been talking about, I think it ultimately improves your customer experience, whether those are internal or external customers. Now taking that half step forward to kind of changing directions of what I was just talking about, there are so many use cases of RPA specifically within call centers or front-facing customer service scenarios where um, think about when you call into a customer service line and a lot of times they're asking you like, oh, okay, what was your order number? Or what's your customer number? Or they're looking for some sort of identifying information from you. They're usually asking you to hang tight for a minute while they go and they look for your information. 
one really good way to use RPA is to have that bot do all of the lookups of all of the information that that customer support rep needs to be able to help solve your problem when you're calling. And so um, that is a super, super common kind of attended scenario that I, I mentioned earlier where you're using that bot to bring back information to help you solve the problem. And um, in scenarios where we've got big call centers or customer service um, situations, trying to solve the problem on the first call and trying to solve that problem quickly is often a really big KPI for those teams because that's their goal. They want to help you. They want to help you on the first call. They don't want to have to transfer you to somebody else because they can't solve your problem. And so a big part of that is getting all of the right information in front of them at the time so that they can see what document you got in the mail and actually be able to tell you what it means. They can see exactly where your order is within the, their, their process or help answer any questions that you've got. And even to the point where, you know, as we start getting into some of the intelligent automation space and also just RPA and kind of looking at automation in this, this arena, it can do things like present customer service reps with reminders to make sure at certain stages of the, the conversation that they're saying things to you that they are required to say to you and making sure that they stay compliant and making sure that they don't have 500 things running in the background of their thought pattern while they're trying to listen to you so that they can be empathetic. They can truly listen to you because they're not fearful that they're going to forget to do something that they're required by law to tell you. And so being able to just free up that mental space <laughs> to even have a smile in their voice when they answer the phone helps improve customer service and your as the customer, your experience and like overall um, opinion of that interaction. Yeah, it's it's almost like um, you're using technology to allow people to do do less and think more. You know, it's it's like you're you're and that when I that's an oversimplification. You're still doing stuff, but you're not doing super manual processes. You're doing higher value processes. You're you're, it's an opportunity to redesign the purpose of a customer service rep and say, you know, your job is not to go look up stuff. Your job is to be the face of the organization to the customer and to, you know, do all the, the breathing that you need to do to be successful uh, in that role. And it's changing conversations about what professional development for some of these types of roles looks like and what, um, what like to your point, just innately, what is the role of that? that job. And um, if you're handling exceptions and you're handling complex, that's a different skill set than handling mundane and repetitive. And as we get to the point where chatbots are coming in and when I want to understand something and I can type back and forth with someone while I'm at work doing something else and I don't have to call a customer service rep, I'm not going to make that phone call unless I'm really angry and I need help or I'm really upset about what's happened and I'm feeling emotional about it. So you need the capacity when you're always taking ex um, those exceptions. There we go. When you're always taking those exceptions and always managing these more emotionally charged interactions, you need that support from your technology to make sure that you can actually focus on the conversation that you're having so that you don't take a misstep and hurt your customer brand, just like you were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Great points. And then uh, uh, Bala, who's on Crowdcast as well, watching live, he he asked the question, which is a great one. Are the bots that you mentioned before, are those capable uh, to do OCR for different languages? 
So if you have documents in different languages, can it is it multilingual? Um, I mean, it depends on what technology you're looking at. The solutions that Navient has, we have two main intelligent document processing tools that we use, or that intelligent um, uh, OCR. And both of those do support multiple languages to the tune of probably like 20 or 30. I don't know if either one of them can take every and all language, um, but I haven't actually run into a scenario with one of my clients where we haven't been able to process what they're looking at. So it's, it's most of the main languages that um, we would run into with our customers because both of our software vendors that we work with are um, international companies. So they're working with people outside the US on a regular basis. Um, the, I would say that if, you know, if you're looking at a specific tool, make sure that that's a question that you ask because there are some that don't have language recognition capabilities across the board. Um, and same with currency recognition. Our tools do support multiple currencies, um, but sometimes that can, can throw other tools depending on what level of intelligence um, or maturity of the tool it is, if they have the capability to do that or not. Right, right. So I want to shift gears a little bit. There's actually more I wanted to cover on the on the sort of the technology side, but you and I share so much in common as far as uh, our views of what makes these sorts of transformations successful. So if we kind of step away from specific technologies for a second and just talk mm -hmm. about transformation in general, whether it's OCR or bots or intelligent automation or ERP, whatever it is, you're, you're doing something to automate your business and improve your business using technology. What do you see as the most important success factors to, to make a transformation successful? Well, I, so no surprise here, but to me, I think change management is the most important part of a transformation. And the reason that I say that, and I, I do not want to minimize the importance of having the right tool and making sure that whatever tool you're bringing into your organization at least can support your requirements. I, you know, going to a conversation we had earlier today, teaser for everybody, we talked about enterprise versus point solutions. I think that there's something to be said about making strategic decisions with your technology that will allow that technology to grow with your organization over time. So I do not want to minimize that, but ultimately, even if you have the coolest, newest, best, amazing technology around and you implement it and nobody decides to adopt it, it doesn't do the cool, great, amazing things you paid lots of money for it to do. And um, my colleague, Mark Miller, always says that technology is the easy part and that the people are the hard part. And um, the more I am in this industry, the more I realize that that's true. You can, again, you can do all of the right things, but if you don't have the buy-in of the people that are supposed to be driving it, you're not going to get anywhere. And so for me, there's kind of like three main things and there <laughs> sounds really simple when I break it down to three things, but I think that there's like three key principles of change management that have to be there and have to be done well for your project to go well. And the first one starts maybe even before you've chosen the technology and that's, you know, identifying what the change within your organization is going to be why you need to make that change and making sure that every person that's involved in the change understands that why. And I don't mean understands the why like from a theoretical level, but understands it well enough to have taken it and internalized it and turned it into their own like what's in it for me statement. Mm 
Mm. Going back to what you said at the beginning or the question that you asked at the beginning of, you know, like how, how do you manage the change of potentially automating large portions of people's uh, position? And ultimately, if you can get them to understand what's in it for you is you don't have to do the part of your job that you hate most every day. Right. We get to take that away and you get to do the parts that are interesting to you or you have less things that you don't like to do all day every day as a part of your position. Right. But helping them understand what's in it for them, not what's in it for the organization, but how it's going to impact their life and make their life better you're going to have an automatic advocate and they are going to have a stake in the success of the project if you can do that correctly. Now that can be done when you've had a solution chosen and you are, are working on getting the buy-in for the, you know, as, as you get going, or it can be done before you've even selected the tool. But that has to be done and there needs to be an understanding through all levels of the organization of why it's happening and why it's valuable to them. And that why looks different for everybody. And then once you get to the point where you're actually working on implementing a solution, it can't be a black box that's solving the problems for people. Now, do they need to understand how OCR is working and what the algorithms are in the background? Of course not. Do they need to understand um, you know, what API integrations are happening to pull all of their systems? No, but they do need to understand what that process looks like and how decisions are being made through that process and um, as you're going through it, making sure that you're being transparent with stubbed toes or hiccups or repivots because you've understood, you know, you identified through your process like, oh, there's actually a way better way that we could be doing this. But there needs to be transparency to that because how I mean, I, I guess I can't ask people on, on the call to raise their hand with us, but I would imagine most people have been in a scenario where a change has been um, either just handed to them and they're told like, okay, this is your new process. And I am like the number one person of like logically being like, how, why? why? Why do I have to do this? Because if I don't understand why, then I'm probably not going to. And um, or there's a lot of organizations that will make a big hubbub on the front end that they're going to do something and disappear into darkness for a year and a half and then just never have anything happen and never tell anybody about what's happening because a project died or it's all of a sudden the timeline has extended substantially and then everybody that you got excited about the change is suddenly discouraged and doesn't believe in your ability to deliver the solution and whereas if you were just honest and transparent about what that process looks like they would be accepting of that and still looking forward to what the value will bring and then on the back end, you can't just bring a solution in and sit it there and, and hope that people understand what it's done for the organization. You have to clearly communicate what wins you've got, what lessons you learned, what did that look like? How, what does this mean for the organization? You have to have, you know, highlight stories of people that got benefit out of the project so that you have momentum behind your total digital transformation. And if you don't take advantage of that, that opportunity to share those stories and scream from the mountaintops about your successes, then again, it's going to be that much harder when you start over again to explain the why and get the buy-in. And so it can be this really like self-perpetuating thing. If you do the change management effectively, suddenly you're going to have so many ideas and so many projects that you don't have the bandwidth to complete them and you have to put together a roadmap. But if you don't do that the right way, then you don't get to that that stage of your transformation. Yeah. 
We're here playing you a clip of an interview with Emma Roloff back from summer of 2021 about the future of AI and robotic process automation. We've got a lot more to cover, so stick around. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 108. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday. Be sure to check us out on audio podcast platforms as well as LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. We're here playing an interview clip with Emma Roloff that was conducted in 2021. Let's continue the conversation. I think you hit another really good point, which is understanding the what's in it for me personally, or at the very least my team or my part of the organization. Not It doesn't always work to have that high level, fluffy, you know, we're going to be more efficient as an organization and we're going to provide better customer service. And that's all great, but it's like, what does that mean to me? Like what I'm doing every day. So I think it's a really good point. Well, and when you hear things like we're going to be more efficient as an organization and we're going to do this project, that's when you start to get the fear associated with those types of projects, because people will jump to conclusions about what that means for them. If you don't help them get to the, the, the crux of what you're looking for. Now, again, I hope that most organizations are not just doing these massive automation projects just to, you know, let go of people because I don't think that that's the right decision. And I think most organizations understand that they need their people. Um, but that doesn't stop the fear of people thinking that automation is going to take their job. And then you look at headlines and there's headlines all over the place about how AI or intelligent automation are going to get rid of X amount of jobs but it leaves out the part of the equation of how many jobs can be put in place to help support these technologies and or how many jobs will just change and not disappear but look different um and that's that's another one that i could could go on for for <laughs> a long time yeah. about but i you know when you look at the the last industrial revolution that we had how many more jobs were created by advancements in technology then were eliminated by people no longer being able to do what they were doing. And um, as technology advances, your role looks different. You, you may potentially have to learn new things, but there's still plenty of opportunity for humans to, to be involved in our work and find work that they're passionate about and, and continue to do new and exciting things um, with this technology. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, when I was a kid in the eighties, you remember the eighties, right? Of course. It wasn't alive, <laughs> but. but... <laughs> Sorry, I had to throw that in there. I, 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 we can say nineties, right? Cause I was there for that. <laughs> my, my parents worked uh, at digital equipment corporation in the eighties when I was growing up. And um, so they were in technology or they worked for a technology company. But um, I still remember even back then, like there was all this fear of like computers 
taking over the world and getting rid of jobs. And that was the same time when uh, a lot of Japanese auto companies were were moving into the U.S. and automating a lot of factories and things like that. So there's this whole, I remember this underlying fear, even as a kid, you kind of sensed it, like this fear of like, oh gosh, robots are going to come in and just take over our jobs. So this isn't really anything new or that fear is nothing new. I think that there's always going to be that underlying fear, um, is, especially as technology gets more and more advanced like that. Well, and the irony of that specific situation is there's a pretty significant shortage of techs that can fix the types of equipment and actual like physical robotics that are in car manufacturing and heavy manufacturing, because something like that goes down, you have to have technical training and you have to understand how to fix that. But there's a shortage of people that can fix that. And, you know, so had, had we been a little bit more forward thinking and spent time encouraging people to go into those positions instead of always just pushing in a different direction of like like heavy academic work, there'd still be lots of opportunity for people to go into the manufacturing space to be a highly specialized technician in those scenarios. And so there is some irony to me that they, you know, the people that fix the robots that potentially took those jobs are now in a shortage because we didn't spend the time learning those skills. So I think that, you know, you do have to, you have to be prepared to learn new skills and figure out now that doesn't always mean being a developer. That doesn't always, you know, there, there's lots of people that feel like they have to figure out how to be a, whether it's code developer, citizen developer, doing configuration. I'm an example of somebody that did not come from a technical background, did not come from, and I, and I have a career in technology now because I took the time to learn some new skills and, and, and build that competency. Now, do I understand everything to do with technology? No, but I have a career that's based in it. And there's a lot of opportunity to take soft skills and other things and repurpose them to get more involved in what the the future of work looks like. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's that's well said. And I think that's why a lot of skilled labor positions are in such high demand too, you know, mm-hmm. in, in addition to fixing robots or whatever the case may be, there's just a lot of skilled labor shortages throughout the uh, throughout the world right now. And I think a lot of that is because of the way just the economy is shifting and it's just it's just changing the nature of work and changing the types of jobs that we need. Just as we unpack the 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 micro example of the AP clerk and how they're or the customer service rep whose job is is just evolving. It's still it on one hand you could say that, that person's job might go away. But what we're saying and which what I've heard you say is it's not necessarily going away. It's just changing. It's changing the focus and the purpose of the job. So I think that's a, a really key point. Um, now, what about uh, another question? It's maybe a, a bit more of just your your personal background. When you look at your your education background, and then you spent the first couple a couple years after being a teacher, you spent a couple years doing training. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think that skill set, that non technical skill set, has has helped you or complemented, or what has it done for your career at Navient in, in this space? So, I mean, I think that background is probably the number one reason that I am so passionate about change management. And I think anybody who has been in a middle school classroom standing in front of them, trying to teach them about something that they don't want to learn about and having to field the question of why do I need to know this and when am I going to use it as an adult? You start to very acutely understand how and why humans need that why. And it's just, and or you look at, you know, I've got two young daughters. My two-year-old probably says why 500 times a day. 
And that just looking at our nature as humans and interacting with children in that capacity, you really, really quickly understand that that is such a critical part of getting buy-in for anything in life. Um, even no, <laughs> no, you may not do that. Why? Well, I've now got to explain it. And I do that so many times a day. And so I would say that's probably like the biggest in terms of like my approach to our industry and my thought pattern on it and why I'm so passionate about change is I think that comes from the teaching days and, and ultimately the training days too. Um, I did my, my corporate training was working for a fast food franchise and training, um, franchisees who are going to go open up their own business um, and run, you know, that franchise, all the ins and outs, everything from making a hamburger on the grill to um, interacting with the customers at the, the cash register to scheduling their team members and understanding the HR laws and that kind of thing. And um, you, th that why is so important there too because ultimately you need to instill the why for them to take that forward and protect that brand. And so that was a really important part of what I did as well through that position was helping them understand why these things are critical for you to understand and how that fits into your job as a brand ambassador moving forward. Um, and then looking at teaching as, you know, directly related to my position, you know, I didn't go too deep into that, but I'm I'm a sales executive for Navient and I manage a number of our um, our accounts as well as looking at bringing on new customers. And so a lot of my position beyond what I do on social media is having converse like critical conversations, doing presentations, and just being comfortable in. We talked a little bit about it before, but being comfortable and going out and giving presentations and talking in front of people. And knowing the worst that's going to happen is I'm going to embarrass myself a little. I did enough of that when I was teaching, enough of spelling words wrong on the board or misspeaking and having to go back and tell the kids like, you know, uh, this happened or here, you know, talking through kind of that critical conversation with this very critical audience. And um, I did see another question come through, but like my last piece is I got very, very good at not having all the answers as a teacher. And I think being in an emerging industry, you have to be very comfortable living in the gray and not knowing all of the answers and working with your customers to solve their problems and working through that process. And um, you get all sorts of varieties of questions and things that come about when you're teaching. And you, as a human, only have so much capacity to understand the ins and outs of things and you never know what direction your conversations are going to go so i got very good at saying like you know what i don't know the answer to that question but let's figure it out together and that's something that i do pretty regularly with my customers and that's been something that i think is really valuable from that career path that i've been able to bring over gotcha yeah it seems like that's a pretty unique uh, skill set i know you know when we're developing our team and looking for, you know, people to join our team, we're, we're looking a lot less at the technical competencies and more at the, the human and EQ and change management uh, mindset, if you will. Um, so that's, uh, that's super interesting. And that, again, that back to how you and I uh, met on, on TikTok and that I, for some reason, TikTok seems to know me well, and you came up in my <laughs> my algorithm or my feed or whatever. And, and so uh, I thought I'd reach out, but. All these emerging technologies worked to get us to, to collaborate on our conversations. <laughs> exactly, that's that's a good point. If it wasn't for AI, I don't know that you and I would have uh, would have met or come, 
cross paths in that in that way. Yeah. Um, so there's another question that popped up, but I'm actually going to maybe preface or spin it a little bit differently because it's a very difficult question to ask or to answer. Yeah. Um, so Gabby on Crowdcast, and this will be sort of maybe the last uh, topic we'll cover here today, even though there's a million things I didn't ask you that I wanted to ask you. So we'll have to have you back on again at some point there we go. to cover part two. Um, but the question is around, uh, the actual question is around how much of uh, this type of digital transformation, which would be RPA and or machine learning plus ERP might cost a small or mid market company and, and how long would it take? But maybe before we get to that answer, maybe I'll back up and ask a pre a pre question leading into that, which is how does the stuff you've been talking about so far, intelligent automation and RPA, machine learning, AI, we talked a little bit about document management. We didn't dive super deep into that. But you look at these different types of technologies that are um, they're very specific. They, they solve very specific types of, of problems. How does that fit in? How do you usually see that fitting into a broader ERP system? Is it is it usually are you guys usually doing this as part of a big you know SAP or Oracle or Microsoft implementation? Or do they already have an ERP system and now you're coming in to sort of plug the plug the gaps or add additional value with these with these point solutions or how does that usually look? I would say it depends. Um, so some of our customers will be kind of going about a big bang transformation approach. More frequently than not though, we are coming in with established kind of core solutions, so to speak, whether that's an ERP, um, because these tools that we're using are so flexible, they sometimes will solve problems to back up accounts payable and, and then there will be another implementation, let's say it's an insurance company and they're doing claims management, integrating with their core um, claims and underwriting solution. And then they find another use case to support HR. And so that, that's the beauty of the tools that we use at Navient is they're really flexible frameworks that can come in to help support gaps across the organization. And, um, we still want to have a defined use case and we still have some really strong kind of repeatable or repeatable use cases that we find like, you know, we've talked about accounts payable. Every company has bills to pay and every company has to follow some semblance of the same process to accomplish that. Um, every company has employees that they have to manage and documentation that support those employees and things like maternity leaves or um, performance reviews or those types of things that that may be managed within their HRIS system. Um, typically, they do a really great job of managing the data. And that's kind of what we see across the board is an ERP or a, um, HRIS or claims solution or in healthcare, you know, your medical records system, they all do a very great job of managing data and driving some processes associated with that data. Now, where we find the use case for like our, our services are typically where there is a process that is dependent on the content and there's information and content that's going to drive that decision. Usually there's something left to be desired with those core applications managing that process because you like in that accounts payable process, there's an invoice. And if someone has to approve that invoice, they need to look at that invoice to make sure that they want to approve it. 
Now, some ERPs do a great job of managing, and you know, over the course of the year, there's or course of time, there's blending of capabilities and overlap between tools. Um, but we typically, when we're working, we look at what you can do with your existing solutions, and let's keep that core processing and that single point of truth and data where it belongs. And then when you've got gaps to fill, we can be that secondary layer to help fill in those gaps and the best visual that I've seen of this, and I wish I had it to show on the screen right now, is kind of a puzzle piece that is one base puzzle piece that locks into these different applications and locks into different processes to fill gaps and create a layer that helps you pull everything in your organization together. So, um, and then, you know, that that's kind of document and process management. And then RPA, you know, doesn't necessarily need to be dependent on a document that can just be a repetitive process and helping enable something above and beyond what your RPA or your ERP can do. Um, and so the, the best way is just really when you, you look at your organization, if you have things like email chains with attachments that are going to five or six different people to manage a process, You've got macro enabled spreadsheets that are you're using to try and manage processes, old like kind of custom built solutions that are kind of clunky that aren't really doing the job for you to manage some of these side off processes. Those are usually the big red flags that there's an opportunity for us to help you be more efficient. Uh, and I have yet to run into an organization, probably even my own team, that aren't using some sort of macro-enabled spreadsheet where there's a better way for us to be doing it. Um, and so there's, you know, the opportunities are so endless in terms of how we could potentially be doing it, but it's making sure that there's a return and a value that comes from automating that process. Got it. So... Maybe and I'll try. I'm trying to unpack Gabby's question a little bit, or or get to a, a answerable version of, of that question because it is so broad and it's it's a great question. Don't get me wrong, Gabby, but it's just it's a there's so many variables that go into what this costs. But you know, just order of magnitude. How help us understand what some of these tools, these these point solutions you're talking about, RPA, machine learning, etc. How what is the cost and the the time to implement compared to you know, say an ERP, a broader ERP system? So um, when you take a look at like RPA, for example, is a relatively low footprint in comparison to like an ERP or even like a document management solution or kind of like full content and process management solution. It tends to be a smaller, like physically smaller implementations as you're getting started. A lot of companies will do like a small proof of concept or one or two processes that they're really focusing in on and then grow over time. Um, and even within RPA though, the hard part with this and, and kind of going back to what you were saying, Eric, is there's so many different vendors and so many different options available. So for small to medium sized companies, you know, they're, there are the options to go with like like Microsoft earlier this year announced that their RPA is going to be a part of their suite. And if you have Microsoft products, you have access to it already. Now, do you have the internal competencies to develop it? Do you have the internal, you know, that it's not free. Let, let's be real. There's, there's costs associated to it, but the software itself 
might be available for you within your organization. Um, now, is that the right tool for every organization for a small one who's looking to automate small processes and you want to train yourself to do it? That may 100% be the best bet for you. Now, if you're looking at a large scale, high volume, unattended process that, you know, is going to offset $100,000 worth of cost savings, you probably want to look at getting something a little bit more robust and bringing in a partner to help you with that. And that's a very different kind of cost structure in comparison to um, that small one off like Microsoft type stuff. Same thing with, um, you know, all of the solutions that I offer, Microsoft has kind of a counterbalance to it that might meet your needs. Now, going back to what we were talking about before, my job is to help understand what your needs are and help advise you on if we would be the right fit or if there's other solutions that you should check out. The, I mean, when you start looking at the landscape of technical solutions, for me to be able to answer the question of like, what should be your expectation? It really comes down to how critical are the applications that you're, you're automating are, um, you know, what, what kind of return you're going to get as an organization of what kind of, and, and also just like your palette of, do we want a solution that we want now? And we're aggressively growing in five years, we're going to be three times the size that we are then you probably don't want to bring something in that you're going to have to replace in a year anyhow. So there, there's a lot of dynamics that go into kind of answering that question um, and, you know, features and functionality that go into it. Um, but there are, you know, if you're if you're interested in learning a little bit more about how to find like a, a great solution to get started with, I would encourage you to start looking into there's tons of information about Microsoft's offerings from the RPA perspective, um, as well as some open source tools and that kind of thing that you could certainly have a lower cost entry point um, if that that's what you're looking for. Interesting. That's super helpful. Well, we we've we've actually exceeded our hour i mean and like i said i could easily spend another hour and still probably not get through all the questions i had plus whatever additional questions the audience has that we didn't get to but i want to thank you for for being here emma this was a super interesting conversation i learned a lot from from chatting with you and uh i appreciate how how you take some fairly complex topics here and you've, you've sort of simplified them to where even i can understand and i presume if, if i can understand it you know hopefully the, the rest of the audience can too um, yeah well, thank you for having me Absolutely. How do people get a hold of you? And what's your what's your uh, TikTok or social media handle, just so people can can find you? Yeah. So LinkedIn and TikTok are both just going to be Emma Roloff. Um, so you can, um, you know, if you're on LinkedIn and you head over to to Eric's, I'm sure I will comment so that you can find me easily. Um, and then on TikTok, it is just at Emma Roloff, I believe. See, I'm so new to that game. You are well more experienced than I am, that I'm still kind of like figuring out the waters there. Um, but on, on LinkedIn, I'm pretty active, do a couple of series of my own. So you'll see Eric on um, in a couple of weeks with my weekly interview series, as well as some live streams and that type of thing. So I'm easy to get a hold of there and happy to answer any questions that anybody have um, in direct message there, or my profile has my, my work email as well. Okay. Thank you, Emma. Great conversation and interesting to hear it again a year and a half later. And we've got some additional insights or thoughts we'll add on to that now that we've had some time to digest that interview over time. And now that stuff has changed and some stuff hasn't changed in that period of time, but we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have that discussion to build on some of the topics that we talked about with Emma. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Are you looking to stay ahead of the curve in the ever-changing landscape of digital transformation? 
then you need our newly released 2023 Digital Transformation Report. This comprehensive report covers the latest trends, technologies, and strategies to ensure your digital transformation is optimized for success. The 2023 Digital Transformation Report is packed full of proven methodologies and insights from experts in the independent digital transformation field. You'll also receive practical insights on how to implement digital transformation strategies within your unique organization. This free report is available for download on our website at thirdstage-consulting.com under our thought leadership section. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 108. I'm here with Kyla Cheatham, and we just had the conversation with Emma Roloff from summer of 2021, talking about the future of AI and robotic process automation and the human side of change as it relates to those technologies. Uh, what were some of your takeaways now that we've had some time from that interview and things have changed, some things haven't changed? What, what are your takeaways from that? Well, I think it's, you know, it's obviously still a very relevant conversation about utilizing automation in business processes and mostly understanding the impact that that will have on your employees and your overall organization. Uh, that still seems to be something that a lot of times we see executives think that, oh, this is a great idea. I'm just going to kind of plug this in and automate this. And you don't really realize the impact that the word automation has on someone who's actually doing that job manually right now. Will they still have value? What will their role look like in the organization? All of those things really have to be established. And what I find so ironic is our overall societal reaction to chat GPT and that overall AI automation is very similar to what an organization experiences when they see new technology within their community. So resistance, fear, distrust, all of these different things that we've seen specifically in even media representation. We've also seen, like we talked about, school districts completely banding it. Um, but I think one of the most interesting pieces of it is there's actually a law school in Minnesota where ChatGPT was given um, all of the essay questions and questions for passing some of their law exams, and it passed with a C+. And for that, yes, technology can pass, but if it's given and coupled with human integration, like Emma was saying, then it, that is really the maxima, maximization of their overall value. Yeah, that's a great point. And as you were saying that about the the law school, you know, the impact on grades, it, you could also just look at it even more personal level for, for you and I on, on the marketing side at third stage. We use an AI tool to create some of our content, but we've by no means uh, scaled back our investments in humans. In fact, we've increased our investment in human, the human side of it because now we have tools that allow us to scale and get more value dollar for dollar for every hour that a human is spending on some sort of marketing function using AI. Now we just get exponentially more return on it. So it, it it's, you know, I don't know if the average employee at, a, at an average organization is going to feel that same way or recognize that that could be the case. But I think the immediate thought would be, you know, on the surface, I, I don't think people would be super surprised if I were to say the opposite of that, which is, oh, we, we got rid of our marketing team because we have AI now. Um, and that's everyone's greatest fear in many ways. Maybe it's every capitalist dream 
<laughs> dream situation because now they can do all the stuff without humans. But that just hasn't been the case from what we've seen both ourselves internally, but also with clients too. It, if anything, it just it uh, creates more opportunity for humans to to do what they're really good at. I think the key though is that people are going to be afraid of it if they don't know if they don't know what else they're good at or don't know what it means to their job and what that future looks like. Absolutely, and I, I think it's almost. Sometimes, and I won't go on my soapbox. You guys know I like to do that. But um, I think it when we start to talk about not allowing it in learning environments, that's really what cyclically creates that resistance and fear. Mm-hmm. Imagine if you were actually allowed to leverage these technologies in the classroom and be able to uh, engage with them and, and learn from them, the, the amount of opportunity that would have in the workforce in, you know, five, 10 years. Um, so it's, it's something as kind of Emma said, is if we kind of lift the veil on the mystery around what is automation, what is AI? Um, it's just that it's artificial intelligence. What is an artificial Christmas tree? It's not a real Christmas tree, right? It's made of artificial materials. Um, and AI yeah. is just that it's made of code. So it's only as intelligent as the code that you put in it, but that's the human part of the overall system. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, as we see customer-centric business strategies, speaking of of buzzwords, Buzzword. um, <laughs> relax, deep breathing, deep breathing. I know, I know I'm trying not to get triggered. But... <laughs> as we see that become a focus, things like chatbots that can mimic conversation like humans, that's a a greater customer engagement tool or offers better customer service because they're able to answer simple questions. You know, how do I buy Chinese dog food on your website? Um, That type of thing. Then the chatbot is able to send you a link and move move through that in real time. So there's tons of opportunities to be able to integrate that into business environments to focus on the customer. We just have to not lose sight of effectively communicating it within the organization. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think she talks about that in the interview with Emma, um, she, Emma talks about that. And that's something that's super important. You've just got to not only explain the why, but the how, you know, how's my job going to look differently? And the problem that we have, though, in, in a lot of digital transformations is the project team and the people sort of leading the change, they're trying to figure it out themselves, what the future state's going to look like. So the, a lot of times they they are never quite caught up enough to be able to communicate and paint that clear picture of how the future state's going to look. And that's why a lot of times we tell organizations, you, you should really slow down. You don't need to deploy technology any faster than you already are because you're just going to end up cleaning up a mess later because you haven't dealt with the human side of, of the change. So why not just go slower, deal with the human side of change and get it to marinate and work, you know, as you go. And that way, by the time you get to go live of whatever new technology is, you've, you've got that stuff figured out. Is that hard sometimes to be kind of the voice of reason in those projects? Because I assume other partners are constantly wanting to go faster, right? Because they, they implement the technology, they go on and sell the next technology, they implement the technology, you know, that's their, their business process. Is it ever hard to kind of explain to clients or, you know, deal with those different vendor relations when you are saying the best thing for the business right now is to slow down and really think about this methodically as opposed to just cram new tech down our organization's throat? It is, although I'll say it's a little bit easier, not easier, but it's not, I think more organizations are catching on to that now. The fact that they do need to slow down more so than they did 
maybe five years ago. Um, and I think the, I think what happened was, as you see, so you had, you had COVID, which really screwed things up in terms of people's expectations. And they feel like a lot of us feel like we just sort of lost two years of our lives, you know, during, during COVID. And so the technical debt thing came up again, you know, after, after COVID where it exposed a lot of challenges with current IT infrastructures. And so there's a sort of rush mentality. Like we've got to do this now. We've got to do digital transformation now. We've got to get it done quick. And the software vendors and the system integrators were feeding into it and they still are. Um, they're feeding into that fear and they're feeding into that sense of urgency, which in some ways is good because you want you want there to be a burning platform for change. You want some urgency, but you don't want to be so urgent that you're just being reckless. And I think that's what a lot of organizations do. And the real challenge I'd say isn't so much that organizations um, don't want to hear a voice of reason. The bigger challenge is that you have all these other parties, the ones that are selling software that have a lot to gain by you moving quickly because they make more money faster because you're paying those subscriptions that much faster, the sooner you get the technology turned on, which by the way, does not mean it's working for your organization. It just means the technology is working. And then the second thing is the system integrators too. You look at their business model. They benefit from a very compressed timeline because they could take, let's just say they have a million dollars of revenue they're going to make. Um, they could make that million dollars over 18 months or they can make it in six months. Most People are going to say, if you're just looking at the economics of it, let's make let's make a million dollars in six months instead of eighteen. So now you've got this economic incentive to say, hey, Mr. or Mrs. Client, why don't you do this in six months? We can do it in six months, and I'm going to staff the project up. And by the way, when it gets to be eighteen months, which it should have been all along, instead of six months, I'm not going to cut back my staffing. My staffing model is going to be the same. So now I'm going to make even more money because now the project's been elongated, and I staffed up as if it was going to be a six month project. So you have all these really um, uh, conflicting economic priorities. So it does make it difficult when we don't make money off clients for going fast or slow. I mean, we, we make money for advising our clients on how to go about this. We help them by implementing and going through the transformation, however makes sense. Um, we're not making money off software or technical services. So um, so that allows us to be the voice of reason in that way. But it, your, to answer your question, that was a really long-winded way of saying, yes, it can be difficult. <laughs> That was a fantastic answer and some truth bombs were dropped in there for sure. Wow. Hashtag but... truth bombs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to hashtag that in the description for sure. Yeah. Um, but well, great conversation and thank you for sharing your insight. Um, and thank you to Emma. If you don't follow Emma, she has a very active social media and does a lot um, on digital transformation as well. So she has both LinkedIn, TikTok, um, Instagram, all those types of channels. Um, so you can go ahead and follow her and, and, um, check out her fun content as well. But, um, I think that that's a good, you know, good segue into kind of our cultural, um, conversation, just because culture is really going to be the main key to making sure that you can be agile, that you can be flexible when it comes to digital transformations and, and you don't experience that extreme resistance to new emerging technologies that can ultimately benefit your business. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And culture is such an important part of it. We touch on it a bit with Emma, but you're going to go even deeper into it with this presentation you gave at a recent digital stratosphere event. Uh, where you had a uh, session dedicated to that topic. So we're going to play a clip from that presentation here in just a moment. But first, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Interested in working for a company that truly values your unique skills and experience? Here at Third Stage, we don't hire based on resumes alone. We look at the full candidate experience and willingness to provide excellent service for our clients. 
Within a technology independent and agnostic consulting firm, you have the opportunity to learn across industries with a diverse group of clients. Our consultants also have the opportunity to diversify their portfolio and learn across technology systems. If you're interested in joining a high growth entrepreneurial organization, please reach out to us at work at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 108. This is the podcast that covers everything related to digital transformation. You can find new episodes every Wednesday, wherever you listen or watch to this podcast. I'm excited for our next guest, um, who you may be familiar with. Her name is Kyla Cheatham. She's the co-host of the show. <laughs> if you haven't heard of her, um, you're not watching this podcast enough. She's <laughs> on here every week. But, <laughs> but uh, in addition to being the uh, podcast host, and in, in addition to being our, mark, our global marketing director, you are also a sort of uh, digital transformation thought leader, if you will. Um, in, in particular, the change management stuff, that seems to be an, an area that you know really well and, um, and that you're very interested in. So it's interesting to, to hear this presentation, uh, also because it's a great topic too, um, in that it's about company culture and how to build a company culture for digital transformation. So it's a great deep dive that sort of builds on the conversation we just had in the last segment with Emma Roloff. So we thought we'd play this clip here. So let's roll the clip of Kyler presenting uh, at, Di at Digital Stratosphere to talk about company culture and how to build one for digital transformation. So we've been talking a lot about what is culture. What does that mean? As it's one of those things similar to OCM that can kind of be intangible. And a lot of times our clients don't often see the investment from an actual analytics standpoint. So that's something that we've kind of been helping to turn their head or, or shift that perception. So I want to talk about what is culture. And just a reminder, I can't quite see your comments right now. So my team will let me know if you have some questions, but definitely want to make sure that they're that we're opening the door for some interactive conversation as this is really important, especially now in our current business climate. So what is culture? We define it as shared values, goals, objectives, attitude, and then perception as well. And that perception is something that's kind of new because it can influence behavior, um, even though it's not something that's typically defined within a, a culture. But we think it's important to elaborate on a business perspective of, of how do your teams, departments, leaders perceive the overall transformation or new technology implementation. Uh, we also want to say culture is oftentimes misunderstood. It's really not a good thing or a bad thing. It's often vilified because it's, you know, we have a bad culture, we have a toxic culture, but it's actually not that type of um, aspect in which you can kind of define. It's really just a part of the company's overall identity, not the main thing that drives it. Like I said here, it's a piece to the puzzle, but not truly key to company success, but we do believe it is key to creating a culture or environment community that you can effectively implement a new technology and upgrade what other change you're creating as a business. And then culture can be different in areas of the business. I think this is pretty straightforward. We all know and have worked with clients or for companies where there might be a great culture in one department and leadership structure that's really solid, but then in other 
areas, it could be a, a less intentional leadership structure that can lead to either a, a bad experience on the employee side, but we'll get into kind of those subcultures as well. Um, the culture of influence, so what we kind of want to talk about is, is culture is really the snow on the mountain. I say that as an, an avid outdoors Colorado um, person, it's it's almost like an avalanche warning. So you can climb the mountain, but if the snow or the avalanche is, is falling upon you, that can totally bring down your climb, your ski, however you want to create that analogy. But it's something that can really take the, the legs out of any sort of project or, or implementation that you're working on. Um, and then this one, you can say it with me, even though I cannot hear you, I believe you're saying it is Technology does not change culture. It is not a Band-Aid strategy. So if you are struggling with cultural aspects of your business and you say, oh, I really would like a technology to bring in and standardize these processes and you know, change the behavior of my overall workforce or create a new customer experience flow, that's not the first step to changing that. You really kind of have to clean up your side of the street, so to speak, and change the culture and influence that before you can integrate any technology successfully. So some risks of cultural mistrust in digital transformation. We talked a lot today about user adoption rates. Um, this is something where you might have the best strategy and, and the most sophisticated implementation plan, but without you know, kind of following that flip following that through and understanding how you're going to get the user adoption rate or, or make sure that you're influencing the use of this new system. And if you have any sort of mistrust in that organization, misunderstanding, misperception, then it really affects the ability for your users to, to leverage this new system and technology and also creates a, a level of fear when we're talking about different industry buzzwords such as automation. I recently did a, a video on why you should stop saying automation and create this misunderstanding within your workforce that, hey, you're automating my job. I'm no longer valuable to the organization. So considering that when you have the mistrust within a culture, that's really going to be the foundation to making sure that your employees, that your frontline workforce believes you. When it comes to processes inefficiencies, this is another place where there might be some mistrust. I know um, Christy and Amanda talked this morning about that tribal knowledge where that employee really creates and associates their own value with the ability to work around a process or that you know beloved spreadsheet or tribal knowledge that they have within the organization. It really uh, you know equates to their overall value and can create whether it's intentional or unintentional resistance to the new technology, especially if there is any culture of mistrust within the organization, that resistance will stem from fear. It's just, you know, a very natural human process. If we don't trust something, if someone comes up to you on the side of the road and says, you know, give me $20 or 20 euro, and you don't know that person, it's just a, a natural reaction to not have that trust relationship. But if someone in a position of trust says, hey, you know, give me $20 because it's going to benefit, you know, our lunch bill, then you're, you're able to kind of engage in that overall relationship and communication 
with a, a bit more of a positive experience. Rippling impacts is something we look at a lot, um, especially now in this current business climate of the great resignation or our labor shortage. We talk about employee attrition and really looking at what is the workforce um, experiencing right now. For example, I just recently talked about on our ground control podcast, a study from PwC that said that any company that experienced any sort of furloughs or layoffs or anything like that during the COVID-19 pandemic that we're still experiencing, over 91% of employees no longer trusted that organization and felt as though they weren't um, strategizing and they were disorganized. So we want to really continue that the rippling impacts of that cultural influence. If your culture doesn't think that you're a sustainable business option, they're obviously not going to be as motivated to implement this new technology or whatever process change is within your objective. Adaptability, we talk a lot about flexibility of an organization and the ability to kind of pivot and adapt. We, you can only pivot and adapt if you have that culture of actually having that flexibility within your strategies and just your overall community. If you have a very rigid culture that's very process oriented, um, it's not easy to go to a more flexible or a different initiative overnight. So you need to consider that when it comes to your overall culture. And then most importantly, your customer experience. We've done a lot of research that shows that when you do have a culture that's not as efficient um, within your organization, your customers will ultimately be impacted, whether that's your supply chain isn't optimized or you don't have the ability to package goods in the fast enough to get it to your customer and it doesn't create a competitive advantage, then that's something that we really need to consider. Looks like I have a question here. Um, that we're getting via text. So, so thank you, Cameron, who's on my team that's helping me out here. So I do want to take this question. Um, the question is, we often find that organizations that are trying to use technology to enable better decision making or better business processes will find that they need new skills within their IT organization. How can we fill those gaps? That's an excellent question. And we find that a lot with something like an open source system where you, it does seem like it's a more flexible option when we look at things like Odoo or anything like that. But a lot of times it requires an, a new IT infrastructure or just additional resources and skill set that you might not have within your organization. So my answer to, to that would be one, make sure you consider that in your software evaluation process. Make sure you really understand, hey, if I do choose this software, I need to establish the roles and responsibilities ahead of time in order to understand how I am going to compensate for any lack of skill set or additional resources. And then utilizing your consultants, we help a lot of our um, partner clients uh, create job descriptions or even network within those roles to make sure that they can fill those gaps when there is any sort of skill set um, discrepancy. So great question. Keep them coming. Um, definitely something that's important to consider throughout this experience. We're here playing a clip of Kyler talking about company culture within digital transformation. We have a lot more to get to. Well, first, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. 
you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 108. We're here playing you a clip of Kyler talking about company culture in digital transformation. All right. So we always talk about evaluating current state. And something we want to do is kind of flip the perception that change management and culture is not a hard and accountable KPI within the organization. It is. It should be seen as a metric. It should be seen as a strategic goal. And it should be seen as something that you can evaluate, not from you know just what you heard from Susie in accounting. It's actually a really structured process to make sure we're understanding the current state of the organization. I know all of our consultant partners out there have gone into you know a, a new business kickoff with a client, and they've said, "Oh, you know our culture is awesome," and their leadership thinks that you know they have this amazing culture. Again, culture is not good or bad. But they think as though we've heard earlier Brian Makaruba say, you know, it's something they all want this new technology. Well, without the actual data and assessment, we don't actually know that. And we don't know if that's the same experience for the organization and enterprise holistically or if that's just one area. We've talked a lot today about the connection of overall technologies and the cross-functional need to understand every sort of process or strategy from each area of the business in order to effectively optimize the technology we're choosing. So those third-party assessments, surveys, research, company understanding, going in and actually assessing the organization, their identity, what motivates the employees, the value, their organizational structure, how the systems affect, affect their overall experience, that's something that, that we need to be able to have that current state 10,000 foot view, or there's no way we can create actionable change and make sure that we're including the software system or new technology that best fits our culture. Um, we need to understand our impact on our ROI and the business processes. It is something that if you have a culture that is not innovative, that's not progressive, that's not ready for a whole new technology, especially when you don't have the resources, we need to know that because it will cause disruption to the business and ultimately you know, impact the overall ROI of the overall um, enterprise. Um, so something that we always suggest in this is influ influencer insight, excuse me, say that 10 times fast, and focus groups. So find that person that is vocal within their overall department or is a leader and you know followed by many of, of their peers or colleagues 
and hold those open focus groups. And most importantly, within that qualitative data um, gathering, make sure you can communicate that autonomy. That's why we always recommend having a third party go in, not something that's going to influence their overall answers, make them less honest, nervous. Am I going to lose my job if I say, you know, my organizational structure isn't supportive and I'm nervous about this new technology because, you know, I can't even surface feedback to my management team. We all need to know that. And usually most of that good, hard, actionable data is found within a safe and an anonymous situation. We also want to map that feedback route um, and, and, and establish our leadership listening skills. So when we do have someone that might be struggling with that new system, we talk about user adoption. What is their route to make sure that they're asking for additional training, that their leadership team is, is, has the skills to listen to them, to say, I'm really struggling with this, this new system, or I'm, I'm nervous about the automation that is coming into payroll because it's my job to sign all the checks and I don't feel like I'll be valuable anymore. How do we evaluate that? that resistance or that fear really in a, in a positive and safe environment. And we wanna map that out as, as part of our planning here. And we wanna establish a strong base. So innovation grows from a strong foundation within the business. That's core business strategies, finances, accounting, inventory management, human capital management, sales process, those are all good baselines to make sure, as we always say, we have those strategies laid out. We have and understand our current state processes, our future state target operating model, and we know what we're going to be today and have alignment on what we want to be tomorrow, as Eric always says, what we want to be when we grow up. So that involves a lot of pre-work and understanding what your culture and how they're going to be impacted by the new technology and a strong foundation. We talk about our house analogy that we did earlier today and Eric and I talk a lot, a lot about on our podcast. But if you're building a house on a, a low foundation or a hill or dirt or anything like that, there's a reason why a lot of houses have concrete foundations, right? Is because that's the strongest material we can build upon. And we wanna have the strongest material as a business, a company and an enterprise that we can build upon. We've talked a little bit about trust level, and this is something that will be measured within that assessment process. Does your company and your overall community trust you? Do they think that you can actually achieve this new business or digital transformation and that they will be in a spot where they are are looking to utilize the new system because they trust you to make the best decision for them as an employee and for the business success as a whole. You really wanna make sure that you understand that. Subcultural awareness. So this is an interesting piece of what we've been looking at as far as our, our cultural resources. Um, identifying those company subcultures and that experience. We talked a little bit about this already at the beginning, but we've all worked at a place where you might be in a department that has kind of a really broken structure, back-ended processes, and a, a weak, honestly, leadership hierarchy, and it really affects the overall morale of the team and the experience of the employee. 
but you might look across the way over to marketing because you know that's obviously my favorite um, department and say wow they look like they're really collaborating they're having a lot of fun they seem as though they're excited to get to work why is my experience so different from theirs and we need to go in as business leaders and measure that so that we we don't go into a situation where we're implementing a new software system across the enterprise we have one department that has user adoption rates that are you know in the 90s 100% and then we have another one that their leadership team isn't able to set expectations or show them the business value of this new system. So, and they have, you know, a, a 50, 60% user adoption rate. We want to get ahead of that. So again, we can we can forward think, if you will, um, any sort of disruption to the overall business and create the best strategies for success of this new digital transformation. Encourage cross-departmental understanding of different roles and responsibilities. So Teresa and Brian talked a little bit about this in the business process, which is great because, you know, that's really the hard science winner, if you will, of the overall uh, digital transformation process. That's really where we're mapping things, we're creating new systems um, and working together. But from a cultural standpoint, just having that awareness of what other if what other people, whatever humans experience within the business, and then establishes that connection. Oh, this is my job, and these are my pain points. And then working with someone completely across the aisle and saying, Oh, this is my job, these are my pain points. And being able to say, Oh, you know, I, I had no idea that you were even struggling with that. That's what I do. You know, sharing those types of strategies and scaling across the business is not only good for the overall implementation planning when it comes to new technology, but it's just good for cross-collaboration and creating a culture of collaboration. It also grows empathy. You know, if you are um, working as a salesperson in a CRM system and it takes you four hours that you could be actually out taking sales calls, but you're trying to, you know, create the data in your CRM system and that's inefficient for you. If you're IT and you thought, oh, you know, it's easy to go out and sell and now you see kind of the struggle with the current system, that grows empathy and that creates an, an area in which that person from IT is much more likely to support their sales colleague and make sure that, that whatever system they might be in charge of implementing considers the experience of that uh, colleague across the aisle. This also is a great step in establishing a digital transformation core team, which we all know is so important to the success of an overall technology implementation or selection and understanding how it will affect every area of the business. But when you go through these cross-departmental exercises, you're able to see kind of the influencers, the leaders on that team, the people that should be involved in planning those new business processes or that implementation planning or even the organizational change management planning um, and establishing that really strong core team so that ultimately your business transformation is more successful. We're here playing a clip of Kyler talking about company culture within digital transformation. We have a lot more to get to. Well, first, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting. And we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. 
It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your, your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings. And the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 Replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out, and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 108. We're here playing you a clip of Kyler talking about company culture in digital transformation. Creating a change plan. So say we've gone through all of these exercises, we realize that our culture isn't quite ready for our technology transformation. How do we make sure that we, we do support them in creating this change, which we talk about a lot, and a culture that is excited, that's motivated, that's innovative um, for new technology and just for overall business growth? Um, the first the first idea is just to be realistic. We all know that change does not happen overnight. You know, change is a muscle that really needs to be developed on many different levels, all starting with the executive leadership and that overall awareness that they need to be intentional about changing or optimizing their business culture. Um, executive leadership support, like we just said, it really truly needs to come from the top. Those might not be the overall execution, but setting the stage and the expectation that, hey, you know, we have some work to do on our culture and we want to do that as a benefit to be a good company that people want to work at and then ultimately achieve whatever technology transformation we're trying to go through. Um, so understanding and creating that and seeing it as an investment in the insurance of your overall project. So if we do not invest in a culture right now from all of the data that we got from our assessments and don't see that as a priority, then it's almost like crashing your car without insurance. It's gonna cost you way more down the road, you know, to get your car fixed, to redesign these project strategies because your implementation failed because you have a culture that was resisting that change and you didn't take it seriously. We also want to understand for our leadership the impact of user adoption on ROI. Like we talked about in our other scenario, if we have a we have a department that's not utilizing our systems effectively and ultimately impacting our customers, they're going to remember that that ROI is something that was effective and their overall experience was poor. Um, systems work, like we talked about with Marcus. There's the system is always going to work, right? For the most part. Um, but if people don't use them, it becomes completely irrelevant. And the executive leadership team and the steering committee really needs to understand the importance 
of making that a huge priority within their strategic planning. Digital transformation pre-work, I like to call it pre-work because like we talked about with Teresa and Brian, when should you start those business process mapping? Well, as soon as you know about it, right? So there is a lot of strategies and overall initiatives that businesses can go through to empower their digital transformation before they even start, right? Um, so establishing those roles and responsibilities, you know, back to that question that we got, that great question, establishing, hey, we have a gap here because we're, you know, we're going with D365 and that's a more flexible system than SAP S4 HANA, which is more standardized. Um, so we need to make sure that we have that ability to either shift our talent right now or identify any gaps within our structure that we need to be able to either source internally or fill externally. That accountability and shared expectations for management. So we've all kind of seen that, that call center, I call it type of model, where you know the, the call lead or the center lead will go in and say like, this is your talk track, you need to do this. And if you don't, you're fired. Well, right now, that's not really working for businesses because of labor shortage, because of attrition. And it's really kind of 2022 is the year of the employee, the year of human capital management strategies to make sure you're optimizing that experience. And honestly, that's not the way that it should be either. We should create accountability on both ends and make it almost as a shared relationship of you know, these are our new job behaviors. And this is as a manager, as a leader, is how I'm going to support you to make sure that we achieve these, these shared KPIs, not that you do something different. And that's something can, that can be set up just overall that training and those new skill sets and honestly, the emotional intelligence that's needed for that um, beforehand. Internal communication, buzzwords. We talked about my example of automation you know, I wouldn't say that you need to go in as a business leader and if you're getting a new finance system, run into the finance department and say, oh my goodness, isn't this amazing? This is all going to be automated. Well, that might be amazing, but the way that that is perceived within your overall internal communication is that my job functions are going away. Like, oh my goodness, am I going to need to look for another job? Am I not valuable to the department? So just really being intentional about how you communicate that, going to that employee say, hey, we're going to automate payroll. And it means that you don't have to do that manually anymore, but now we get to develop you in A, B, and C areas that will give you more job opportunity and bring more value to the organization. Um, tactics for cultural transformation. So this is really kind of the meat and potatoes, if you will, of how you get to a culture of transformation. Um, communicating that vision for a new culture. We talked about how that starts at the top and that needs to be intentional, down to middle leadership, and then ultimately to the front lines. Everyone should be aligned on that. Organizational design, how will these new roles and responsibilities support that new culture? How do you as employees or our workforce get to enable this new technology or get to enable us to progress as a business, which ultimately means more opportunity for you? Performance systems reward to 
it essentially reinforce the desired culture. So making sure that, again, it, within that intentional communication structure, and we'll talk about kind of benefits realization, realization in a second here, but how do you make sure that you are recognizing those leaders or those employees that are doing the things to create that new culture or to um, help support the technology integration? How do you make sure you're creating a system that, yay, you know, Kyla went through all of her training today and she processed five more sales orders than she usually does because of this new technology, giving them that data within a way that they can understand how this will benefit their overall business and their experience within the company. Stakeholder assessments to ensure that senior leadership and key stakeholders are aligned. Really what this does is, is continues to drive that cultural alignment within the executive ranks. We talk a lot about it's not just aligning one time and then you know five years later throughout a technology implementation, making sure you're still aligned. No, we're going to go in and do those, you know, consistent frequency of project health checks to make sure we are all still aligned, whether there's employee turnover or whether just a lot of time has passed and we need to, you know, regroup on the overall objectives of the project to make sure we are in supporting the employees that are, are really championing this new technology implementation. And that validation of that future state business processes systems um, configuration that supports that future state. So if we want to, you know, go out and be a, a fully automated manufacturing system and we're removing all human life from our manufacturing floors, well, then we need to talk about what that means for those people that are moving and then mostly what that means for that new system and the integrations around it. If you want more information on this, I recently talked about this for um, Amazon and their new robot manufacturing lines on one of our ground control episodes. And it was really interesting just to, to consider all of the things that these emerging technologies are making manufacturing strategies consider. You know, how far can the robot reach? Do we need to completely redo, you know, the assembly line? Do we need to create different raw materials that the robot can easily assemble and it doesn't need, you know, in, human intervention, those smart manufacturing floors, they still have, um, they're not 100% automated, right? There's, they still have a human component to them, but we need to think through all of those things so that we can commit to a future state vision. Benefits realization. So this is really kind of taking the context of the benefits realization from how it affected the ROI on the software side um, to how, how did it affect and create value within the business side? So the, in, the intentional communications of the benefit, the business benefits um, and the digital transformation, we want to be consistent and have a high frequency around the ROI impact. Hey, you know, because all of you helped us integrate this new NetSuite software, we were able to, you know, increased revenue by 20% in Q4. Being specific about that and creating that recognition around the employees that did that. Um, new company innovations. So say, yeah, we we automated our manufacturing, but that made, made it so that we could create more leadership positions and develop a, a bigger footprint um, for our distribution, which our employees really enabled. 
Um, again, we talk about that recognition uh, by calling out specific case studies of an employee or department that really excelled at this new transformation and that culture of recognition because we are innovators now with our, our new culture plans. Promotions and new opportunities. I think a lot of times this is overlooked, especially when we're evaluating those new roles and responsibilities within our change plan and communicating that as an opportunity. Hey, we won't have three coordinators anymore because we're optimizing those roles, but we will now have you know, two managers and a director roll up that's going to let us op optimize opportunities for growth internally. And here's how we're going to train and support and develop you as an employee to get you there because we think you're worth it and we think you're valuable. Um, and then team wins, especially in those cross-functional roles, right? You know, um, Kyler from manufacturing helped so and Eric from shipping create this new innovation of, of how we're going to package our product and get it out the door faster. They work together, even though they typically don't cross roles to create that united front and really optimize that overall culture of the company and that collaboration. Okay. Thank you, Kyla. Great conversation. There's a lot more that we can dive into there and a very relevant topic, very relevant to the change management discipline, as well as digital transformations in general. We're going to talk a little bit more about that presentation here in just a moment, but first we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 108. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. And Kyler, you just gave a great presentation, almost as if you just gave it, but you actually gave it several months ago. And But you can take the credit as if you just gave us that presentation. Uh, what, what was your, uh, now that you've had some time to talk more about this topic and learn more about it since those several months ago that you presented that, what are what were some of your thoughts from, from that presentation? Well, um, First, just a, a logistic. If you um, if you click the link below in in the description, you're able to download those um, slides from that deck. So if you are listening to this in an audio format, it's hard to visualize kind of the slides. You're able to um, to do that and and get those um, downloaded. So just a, a note there. Um, and if you have any feedback, um, you can email me at Kyler at third stage consulting.com. Um, I'd love to hear your feedback. But I think my, my biggest point in there, and as we kind of try and drive home, is that culture is measurable. It is an, a data point that should be a, a main consideration, if not the main consideration, in a digital transformation project or when considering going through a digital transformation project. Um, 
I recently talked to one of our great clients, as I get to do after they have achieved their final deliverable or they're going to their next phase. And really the biggest theme I find with them is that their culture was already ready to embrace new technology, to embrace new processes, are are, uh, encouraged to innovate think outside the box. Those are the clients that it's it's not easy, it's never easy, but it's it's much more effective and we can we can create much more influence when that culture is already in existence or you're moving the needle towards it. But the first step is really finding what is your current state and what do you want to be? Uh, and it is an analytical process. Unlike traditionally, it seemed as more of a, a soft service. It's really a process in which you can take temperament and measurements and create goals and KPIs around around culture. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's all great points. I mean, yes, it's measurable. Um, yes, you need to have that foundation in place before you start jumping into a digital transformation. Um, if you think about it, technology is always going to be moving faster and ahead of your own culture and your ability to change. So you do, there's a lot of conditioning that you need to do as an organization to get ready for change and make sure that you can adapt to the change as it, as it happens. Absolutely. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed it. Um, and again, if you do have any feedback, you can um, reach out to me. And I, I always love to hear from our listeners um, about how you know we can create content very relevant to what you want to hear about. So thanks for letting me have the driver's seat on that one. Absolutely. Great, great topic and great conversation. And like I said, it dovetails nicely into the earlier segment with Emma about uh, organizational change and the human side of emerging technology. So great, great conversation. And thank you for sharing that presentation with us. And if we, if you want to see that presentation or other presentations in, in their entirety from our recent digital stratosphere events, you can go to stratosphere2022.com. Um, and that, that website contains all the, uh, all the info. I don't know if we have the stratosphere 2023 site up yet, but uh, I know if you go to 2022.com, it, it's uh, up and running, you can get, you can still get access to all the presentations, right? Mm-hmm. Out there. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yep. You just click on, on the link and then all of um, the presentations and the videos will be delivered right to your inbox. Yeah. Great. So stratosphere2022.com. Be sure to check that out and uh, appreciate everyone being here today. Thank you, Kyler, for being here as always. Uh, appreciate everyone listening in all your great questions. Uh, be sure to su- subscribe to us, leave us a review, share this podcast with your colleagues and peers, anyone you think that might be interested We'd love to get the word out to more people about this podcast. So hope you have a great week. We'll look forward to seeing you next time on Transformation Ground Control. Have a great week in the meantime. As well as the future of AI and robotic process. Let me do that over. Nailed it. (laughs) Perfect. As always, (laughs) first take after I screwed up up the first one. (laughs) Yep. I'm just that telling was, was Andy good. right in front of me, who's our dog, that if he barks, he's going to be asked to leave because he's been all up on. He was barking this morning when we were talking. So.